You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Common Descent Podcast, episode 145. If you're new to the podcast, this is a podcast about paleontology, evolution, and the history of life on Earth. And also, if you're new to the podcast, these days, every episode that ends in a five, we talk about plant stuff. Yeah, we do. This episode, our topic to discuss is photosynthesis. Photosynthesis. Which means a couple of things. Number one, it means we're talking about more than just plants. Yes. Because that is not just a plant thing. We're going to be outside. We're expanding a little bit today. It also means we will be joined, as usual, by our special plant-themed guest, Dr. Ali Baumgartner. After the break, after the news, after the announcements, when we get into the main discussion, Ali will join us to talk about what photosynthesis is, how it works, what the different varieties of photosynthesis are, the different flavors that are out there, and who does it, and what we know about the ancient history of the process. I'm very excited. I always found photosynthesis very interesting when back in biology 101 and, and botany. Yeah, well, this should be one of those topics that really puts into context a lot of stuff we've talked about in previous episodes of the podcast. Mm -hmm. We're talking about some foundational material. On top of all that, this episode topic was requested, as all of our episode topics are, this one by Belladonna, Jackson, and Jackie. Thanks for the requests. Before we get into the major sections of the episode, some announcements, starting with the fact that we have a Patreon. We sure do. The pledges we receive on Patreon allow us to do all of the things we do with this podcast. They keep the podcast running. They keep the lights on, the mics on, and the, the hosts working and eating. <laughs> Subscribers on our Patreon get all sorts of bonus goodies, bonus content, audio, all sorts of cool stuff. And at a certain level, when you subscribe on our Patreon, we will shout your name out in gratitude like this. Welcome and thank you to Abby, Jessica, Oscar, Ryan, and Jen. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Well, listeners, it is August now, it which is. means that Snake Month and Croc Month are both over. Yes. We spent June and July celebrating Croc and Snake Month for the first time. Maybe we'll do it again in the future because it was so much fun. We had bonus episodes with special guests, Dr. Marissa Tejas and Hiral Nike. We had special social media posts on all of our social medias, and we did Discord stuff, and we did all sorts of fun special events, and a special subscription tier was available on our Patreon. Now, if you've missed a lot of that stuff, you can go back and check out the social media posts, listen to the bonus episodes. Some of those things, like the Discord stuff and the Patreon stuff, are now closed, which means that, sadly, we are saying goodbye to this year's Croc and Snake Month. But happily, we can now officially announce how that Patreon tier went. Yes. We announced all throughout Croc and Snake Month that the special Crocs and Snakes tier, later renamed the Snakes and Crocs tier when the months shifted over, patrons that subscribed at that tier their pledges would contribute to donations that we would be able to make to snake and croc conservation at the end of the summer. And now we can do that. 
thanks to the participation of all the people that signed up at those tiers over the last two months, we are going to be able to donate a grand total of $700 split neatly in half to the two organizations that our special guests from Croc and Snake Month work with. Yeah, it's really exciting. This will be the Crocodilian Research Coalition and Save the Snakes, the two organizations which are how we found Marissa and Hiral, who were our guests on our Croc and Snake bonus episodes for Croc and Snake Month. We are giving back to those organizations for the wonderful conservation work they do. And as a nice little end cap to our conservation theme that we touched on throughout the two months. Yeah, so everyone who joined in on the Croc and Snake or Snake and Croc tiers, you will be able to help the research that Hiral and Marissa talked about in their episodes. Absolutely. So thank you so much to everybody who joined in. Thanks so much to everyone who engaged with the Croc and Snake Month stuff on Discord, on social media. Thanks once again, of course, to both Marissa and Hiral for joining us. And thanks to all the conservationists out there helping to save our scaly friends. Absolutely. If you are also sad that Croc and Snake Month are over, uh, we enjoyed it so much that maybe we'll do it again sometime. Yeah, it's just a year. A couple more quick things. Number one, we're going back to Dragon Con. We sure are. First week of September, we will be making our triumphant return to Dragon Con in Atlanta, Georgia. We announced that last time. This time, we can announce what panels we're going to be doing. Yes, we've been updated. The schedule for what science panels on the science track are going to be up has is is being formed. So at this moment, we can confirm that we will be part of at least three different panels. And the three we can confirm are a speculative evolution panel. Yeah. Right up our alley. Our traditional paleontology hour, which should be, again, the two of us and Trevor Valley. Yes. And a presentation that the two of us are doing with our friend Lucas called Jurassic Park is a Terrible Zoo. Yep. And it's going to be so much fun. (laughs) I'm looking forward to all three of these so much. Like, paleo hour is always fun. Yes. And speculative evolution is always fun. But the, Naturally. But the Jurassic Park Zoo, this, we've been getting really, really excited for that one. Yeah. So if you're going to be at DragonCon, check that out. We will have more updates in the future. One more thing for us to get to. Will, we have received some mail recently. We have. We actually got a decent amount of mail for this episode to announce this episode. We got a letter from Elizabeth with a, a holographic T-Rex card. Very nice. Which was neat. We got a couple of birthday cards. From Jackie. From Jackie. For whenever our birthdays are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which were very sweet. It had a little happy birthday snake and croc, respectively. Yeah. And then we got a book from John that was an old dinosaur educational book, like for kids. With old dino art and yeah, old dino and, info. And old dino info, yeah. <laughs> it was very fun getting to see truly out-of-date dino information with some very interesting art. Yeah, so huge thanks to everyone who sent us mail. Yes, thank you, thank you. We also got a painting. We did. <laughs> because we met two other listeners, Jackson and Caleb, in person at the museum and we got to hang out with them for a bit. Yeah, they gave us a little canvas painting, of a, a, a Technicolor painting with a little dinophilus in the corner that's just adorable. It's fantastic. And it glows in the dark, which I'm a sucker for. Did you test that? I did. Okay, I yeah. haven't seen the glow in the dark yeah. yet. <laughs> you get some of the clouds in the water glowing. Nice. Just ethereally, and it's very nice. We will share that painting on our social media, so keep your eyes out for that. And it should also go up on the fan art section of our blog. Yes, indeed. 
at the top of this episode, we are just filled with warm, fuzzy feelings about all the support and and love and gifts and all sorts of things we're getting from our listeners. It's pretty awesome. You all are pretty awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much. Here's an episode just for you. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's move on to our first official section, the news. news. Every episode, we pick some news from the world of paleontology, evolution and related stuff to keep us up to date on what's going on and then to share it with you. And also let us go a little bit more in depth into how scientific studies themselves are done. Will give us a news. Happily. My first bit of news is about plesiosaurs, which were those often longish necked marine reptiles from the Mesozoic. Episode 72. Except these might not have been marine. Oh! This is research by Georgiana Bunker et al. in Cretaceous Research, and the article is a press release by the University of Bath in Fizz.org. By the way, when we announce the names of our authors and stuff, we say et al. We got a question recently from someone who was like, what does that term oh, mean? Good point. And I, I realized, I don't know that we've ever explained what that means. Yeah, it's like this, there's a Saturday morning breakfast series about that, <laughs> which was a person realizing the loophole and saying, I am legally changing my name to et al. <laughs> uh, when you talk about a scientific paper, instead of listing all the many authors, you traditionally say the first name and then et al, which is derived from Latin, that basically means and the rest. Yeah, and everybody else. So... Bunker at all. Yeah. And there's, there's depending on which paper or who you ask, you'll either do the first person or maybe if it's just two people in the study, you'll just do the pair. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I've seen it three, but more than that, you do the first name and at all. Yeah. So that's what at all means. At all means and everybody else. Yeah. Well, Georgiana and everybody else, <laughs> we're studying some plesiosaurs from mid Cretaceous Morocco, specifically the Chem Chem group is the fossil deposit, which is important because this deposit is the remains of what was a hundred million year old river that is now a desert. They found the remains of plesiosaurs in this old river, uh, included teeth, vertebra, backbones, and humerus, the arm bone, upper arm bone, which were scattered. It wasn't one specimen or even just like a you know, couple complete. It was scattered across different areas in total, they said they had over a dozen animals, parts of a dozen animals, and they have different age ranges. Uh, the humerus seems to represent a young juvenile that would have been like a meter and a half long. Ooh, so, a little tiny one. Yeah, less than six feet. And the vertebrae seem to be from subadults. They have ones from neck, back, and tail, so they've got throughout the body. These all show features of a group known as Leptoclididae which is a group of early Cretaceous small-bodied plesiosaurs. These typically don't get bigger than like three meters long, you know, so 10 feet long, which for a plesiosaur is not that big. Right. Uh, there were much, much longer plesiosaurs during the Cretaceous and Mesozoic. These are often found in near shore or not non-marine settings. And this is among the youngest of all of the Leptoclidides. This is the first freshwater plesiosaur from Morocco. It's not the first time we've ever found plesiosaurs in freshwater habitats. Gotcha. Uh, we have found them in freshwater or what were likely brackish water habitats before. So mm -hmm. this isn't the first time we found them outside of ocean material. Right. Plesiosaurs, like mosasaurs, like ichthyosaurs, all the, the famous marine reptiles of the Mesozoic are famously ocean dwellers. Yes, they are. So freshwater is, if not unheard of, unusual. In this case, 
quite often, it's thought that when we find them in freshwater habitats, it's either that they may be visiting or that they may just be using this area temporarily. You know, there's lots of marine animals that will go up into rivers to have young. That's very common with marine animals today. Right. And so that could have been happening with plesiosaurs or other marine reptiles. And there have been members of mosasaurs and other marine reptiles found in freshwater habitats. But they say that the number of plesiosaurs they have in this river kind of casts doubt on the idea that they were just happened to be visiting. Right. That this seems like a decent population that was in this river. And there's a number of lines of evidence that suggest these might have been river plesiosaurs. Hmm. That freshwater plesiosaurs specialized for it even. Right. Kind of like river dolphins today. Exactly the comparison they make. And there are some comparisons that seem to fit with that. One is this group is known for nearshore freshwater habitats, like the overall plesiosaur group. So this is not an unusual feature for the group they're in. Right, leptoclited specifically. Yes, which suggests that they probably were adapted for shallow, low salinity, you know, mm-hmm. at least low salt environments. They find an abundance of shed teeth that seem to have been lost while the animals were alive. So shed in life, you know, right. replacing the teeth as they, they live. Which, if that is what was happening, shows that they were living here. They were were there for a while. Long enough to shed bunches of teeth. Just like we find shark's teeth at the shore, because sharks are shedding their teeth in the ocean. Mm -hmm. It seems they were shedding their teeth in this river quite a bit. The teeth show heavy wear, similar wear patterns to spinosaurids, which are also found in this area. Episode 42, those are the big carnivorous dinosaurs that are known to go hunting in aquatic environments, eating fish and stuff. Which suggests they were likely eating similar foods. Mm -hmm. That what they said is chipping their teeth on the armored fish in the river. Yep, that'll happen. (laughs) (laughs) Which once again seems to suggest that they were spending tons of time here with these prey items. Yeah. They also know that their small size would have made them very good at traveling up rivers and up smaller waterways. You know, they're not massive orca-sized plesiosaurs, they are pretty small, just under 10 feet long, and that we could be looking at freshwater specialist plesiosaurs, like the river dolphins. What a cool thing to find. Absolutely. This research must be the reason that a bunch of people on my social media feeds were talking about Loch Ness recently. Sure is. Because there was, I think it was a Daily Mail article where the headline said, scientists say Loch Ness is plausible. Yep. Because these plesiosaurs lived in uh, freshwater. Yep, indeed. There was another news article in response to that from ABC10 that said scientists did not say. <laughs> right. Because, of course. No. Yeah, this is in, This was not connected to Loch Ness in any way. It wasn't no. mentioned in the original actual reliable articles and press releases. It's just someone that heard freshwater? No, plesiosaur? Fresh, freshwater plesiosaur. No. Vindication. This is not what that's (laughs) suggesting at all. No, this is much cooler for the scientific reasons of knowing that there are different habitats that these animals were able to exploit, that they were able to use. Yes. When it's fun to see what we thought was a marine exclusive group, oftentimes may have had specialists elsewhere. Indeed. Well, I've got a news that investigates the origins of warm-bloodedness in mammals. Oh, hey, that's us. Using a line of evidence that has not been used before. Ooh. Which is pretty cool. This is research published in Nature 
by Ricardo Araujo et al. And in the blog post that goes along with this episode, we will link, along with all of our news links, this one to an article in Science by Catherine Irving. Endothermy is the physiological condition of being able to produce your own heat inside your body. Yep. As opposed to ectothermy, where like reptiles and amphibians, typically you have to get your heat from outside to warm up enough to power yourself. Being endothermic or, quote, warm-blooded is a key feature of both mammals and birds, mm -hmm. as well as possibly some other extinct groups. The jury is out on a lot of those. But there's been a lot of discussion and debate among scientists about when endothermy, when warm-bloodedness as we know it, got started in various groups. There have been a number of studies in the past that have looked for potential signs of this, like patterns of bone growth or the uh, presence of feathers or fur. But all those lines of evidence uh, have drawbacks and uncertainties. This study looks for evidence in the inner ear. And the reason that the inner ear is relevant is very cool. Will's going to like this. Ooh, I'm excited. I like The inner ear stuff is always interesting. Inside the inner ear are structures called semicircular canals. These are loopy little tubes inside of our inner ears. In life, they are filled with endolymph, a fluid that flows through them. And these structures are essential for things like coordination and navigation and spatial awareness. It, it's the reason you get dizzy is when those all get messed up. This is what gives you your balance and why you get off balance when you get dizzy. Yes. And because of that, inner ear anatomy in fossil animals is often used to examine locomotion. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about that before on the podcast, that you, different features of the inner ear might be able to tell you about an animal's habits of swimming or climbing or running or whatever. Yeah. What kind of navigation system did you need for how you were moving around? Yes. This study finds a relationship between inner ear anatomy and body temperature. Weird. They examined 277 living species and found a correlation with temperature and anatomy in a way that you will really enjoy. Endolymph, the fluid, becomes thinner and less viscous at higher temperatures. Oh, that makes so much sense. So endotherms today, they found, have less viscous endolymph, and smaller, thinner, semicircular canals. Because <laughs> of physics. Yes, it's like the little frogs. The, your, the fluid dynamics are messing up or changing the way your inner ear has to work. Yes. Ah, that's awesome. So then they went to see, all right, well, if the size and shape of the canals correlates with body temperature and endothermy versus ectothermy, let's look at fossils. Because fossils, often they don't preserve this because they're very tiny, delicate structures. But in well-preserved fossils, you can absolutely get them. They examined about 60 different extinct species, including ancient mammals, mammaliomorphs, so things that were very close to mammals around the origins of mammals, and not-quite-mammal synapsids, the kind of things we talked about way back in episode 47. And what they found is, looking across the fossil record... And as they described it, abrupt shift from larger to smaller ear canals within this lineage around 233 million years ago in the late Triassic, which is around the time that mammaliomorphs first evolved oh. from the more distant ancestors of mammals. This is also around the same time that we see evidence of early mammal-like features, such as the flexible backbone and whiskers. 
Interesting. They also point out that from what they studied, it looks like this change happened relatively quickly. Yeah. Over the course of about a million years. Wow. This new group that would eventually include mammals originates at this time in the late Cretaceous and relatively quickly makes the shift from ectothermic looking ear anatomy to endothermic ear anatomy. That is really quick. That's fascinating. It like this, this could have been a very critical or, or very connected feature to early mammal, like that we didn't see this show up within mammals that this this may have happened while they were becoming yes. mammals. Oh. Now, uh, it has been pointed out, and it's pointed out in the article, that there are still mysteries. This isn't a flawless description. One author, another scientist that they quoted in the article, points out that basically all it would take for this pattern to change in our understanding is if we find an earlier mammaliform, yep. mammaliomorph, that if, if there were others a few million years earlier and they also have this, that might stretch out the duration of the yes. change. So surely there's still going to be more studies to be done on exactly when and exactly how quickly that, it, that shift happened. Yes. But it is notable in this study because at least th these results suggest that the shift to warm-bloodedness happened about 20 million years later than previous research has estimated. That is really interesting. That we had very, very close to mammal things. And for a while, they might not have been warm-blooded. That they, they might, were ectotherms. They might have been ectotherms. And the, the, point, the article points that out, that this, if this is correct... A lot of the, the mammal cousins that we'll often point to and go, oh, I wonder if that was warm-blooded too, might not have been. Yeah. Like in the example they give is Dimetrodon. Yes. Now, famously, a synapsid cousin of ours might have been an ectotherm. Yeah, which is very, very intriguing. Like I said, it, it's interesting because it's often been thought that maybe some form of endothermy or, or pseudo-endothermy or partial endothermies were showing up in the overall group that mammals came from. Right. And that then mammals evolved and, and perfected it to a more mammalian form that we know. Right. But this is saying that maybe not, maybe that is what made them mammals. <laughs> like, yeah, like that, that this was a, a rapid evolutionary shift that let mammals be mammals. Yes. Which is, oh, that's fascinating to me to think of it as a, you know, not mammal exclusive, but that mm -hmm. that transition was in within that group was mammal exclusive is very, very cool. Yeah. Hmm. Also, if that correlation holds up that you can learn about body temperature and endothermy using semicircular canals in the ear, that would be a really good incentive to go start taking a look at the inner ears of all the other ancient groups that we've gone back and forth trying to figure out, like dinosaurs yes, and please. marine reptiles like plesiosaurs and mosasaurs. Yes, please. So surely there will be more in this vein in the future. Yes. Keep your ears open. I'm very excited for that. Well, since you mentioned marine reptiles right there at the end, I want to talk about... <laughs> a large marine animal. My next bit of news is about whale sharks. Oh. And this is actually modern research, but it was it was too cool for me to pass up. Funnily enough, whale sharks were mentioned in the article about the semicircular canals because there's a little bit about the researcher that they interviewed 
starting to suspect this difference in the shape of the canals. And the example he gives is that the largest semicircular canals that we know of in modern day are in whale sharks. Oh. Because they are large-bodied ectotherms. They're much bigger. They're much bigger tubes than in whales. That's that's a really good point. Yeah. So oh, there's, your, there's your segue. There we go. So speaking of whale sharks, <laughs> this research is about whale sharks' diet and that it seems to be more diverse than we thought. Oh, I love that. It's really cool. This is research by Mark Meekin. No, at all. Just Mark. Just Mark in the journal Ecology, and the article is by Ben Turner in Live Science. So, speaking of large aquatic animals, today the largest aquatic animals are all filter feeders. It's you got the big whales and the whale shark. They are taking in large food. You have some things like the sperm whale, but typically most of them are taking in large amounts of water and filtering out food. The whale shark, the biggest shark species today, the biggest fish today, which can weigh up to 40 tons or 36 metric tons and up to 40 feet or 12 meters long. Which is too big for a fish. It's so big. They're so cool. <laughs> we, They are well-known filter feeders. They've got a big wide mouth. They open it up, take in gallons and gallons of water and filter out mostly swimming plankton, uh, you know, and krill-like sh- shrimp creatures. Right. Tiny, tiny little, like you said, krill, shrimp, larvae, mm-hmm. all the tiny little mi- bitty things swimming in the water. Precisely. This food is great because it is very plentiful in the ocean, but it is patchy. It is not consistent throughout the oceans. You have to find concentrations of it to feed well. And being such large animals, they have to be cost-effective in their feeding. You know, they can't just waste energy or else they won't get enough food to fuel their giant body. Which means they tend to focus on specific features in the ocean. Uh, Seamounts and things like that, that cause upwellings and concentrations of these planktonic food sources. Yeah, very nutritious waters that attract all of that plankton. But they don't just attract plankton. They don't just concentrate it, because these are concentrated typically by currents hitting the seamount and forcing things up. Mm-hmm. So anything floating in the water in those currents also gets concentrated there, including macroalgae. So these whales should be taking in large amounts of algae in their mouth foods, mouthfuls of plankton as well. Makes sense. Which, if they're swallowing that, that would be an energy drain on their digestive system if they can't digest it. If they're having to expel it or just pass it all the way through, right? it's making them less efficient. They're mixing in useless stuff with their good food. But if it can be digested, then that would cover that energy cost. So they looked into what's happening with this algae. Is it part of the diet or is it not? Right, or is it just coming out the other end? Exactly. They used a couple of different techniques. They looked at amino acid compound specific staple isotope analysis, which is... Oh, my favorite. CSIA and a fatty acid analysis. And they looked at skinned samples from Western Australia's Ningalo Reef of whale sharks, as well as samples of food items commonly found in their diet, and some of the macroalgae that they would likely be, some of the sargasm that they'd be taking in. The CSIA analysis showed trophic level consistent with omnivory. Huh. Yeah. And the fatty acid profiles of the shark tissues, feces, and all those potential prey items, including the sargasm, identified high concentrations of sargassum in the shark's diet. 
in the fatty tissues, the fatty acids of the shark tissue. That they are being incorporated yes. into the tissues. Yes. This is specifically a type of brown seaweed and suggests that it is making up not just that it is getting incorporated, but makes up a significant source of their diet. Wow. This would compensate for the energy loss of that algae. So it makes sense. And it would make them the world's largest omnivore pushing out the Kodiak bear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pushing out the Kodiak bear by quite a bit. Yep. Wow. That, that makes, and it seems like such an obvious thing. Yes. That, yeah, if you're sucking up stuff, you're eating everything. But not every animal can digest everything. Mm-hmm. Like lots of animals will ingest foods that they technically can't eat or digest very effectively. The fact that it is adapted to utilizing that plant-like material, that algae material, is a really significant finding. Absolutely. And it contradicts uh, an old kind of thought on large animals on land versus sea, that it was often thought that typically the largest animals on land are herbivorous, but in sea, that's not the case. Typically, the largest animals we see in the ocean are predators, even if they are still filter feeding, so they're not aggressively tearing apart. You know, they're eating animals. Right. This seems to indicate that, well, maybe they're not as different. You know, maybe that rule doesn't hold up as well as we have just assumed in many cases. And they also point out that while this wider diet is going to make them more hardy for different situations, it does bring a danger. If they are not expelling unwanted food items, it makes them more prone to danger from microplastics, from ocean-borne plastics. Mm. If they're not spitting out the algae and they're digesting it, then that means they are indeterminately taking things in more than we might have thought, which means that those ocean upwellings also collect plastic particles and plastic material, so this is actually a more dangerous feeding style for that pollution. Right. This is a more dangerous way to live in a world populated by humans. Exactly. So it's another Mm. thing to keep in mind about whale shark health and protection. This also makes me wonder how closely have we examined the diets of big baleen whales? I had the exact same thought. Are big whales doing the same thing? Are they more? And it could be that they are more selective, Mm -hmm. you know, or they're digesting it differently. But it sure would make sense if the shark's doing it. Very interesting. Oh, that's a very cool. I'm always, it, it is a very simple pleasure to discover that any animal is eating things we didn't think that they were yeah. eating. That's always fun. It, it just makes me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got one last news for this episode, and it is news about the Gray Fossil Site. Oh, hey, I, I know that place. <laughs> this, uh, we've talked about the Gray Fossil Site a whole bunch. It is the site where we work slash have worked slash are associated with <laughs> and have done a bunch of research. It is also a fitting topic for this episode because Allie used to work and study at the Gray Fossil Site with us back in the day. Yeah. This new research has identified a new apex predator at the Gray Fossil Site. Boy, I love everything about that. Oh, it's just, I'm, I'm (laughs) delighted. (laughs) This research is published by Emily Bogner and Josh Samuels. Hey, we know both of those people. Hey. Way to go, Emily and Josh, in the Journal of Paleontology. And we will link to a press release on the Gray Fossil Site website written by me. Convenient. This is one of those. Every now and then we get a news like this where I'm like, oh, I don't have to learn anything. I already know everything about this news. I wrote the press release about it. 
getting paid twice to do this. I, <laughs> <laughs> so keep that in mind as we talk about this, that we are uh, far from a bi- an unbiased source. <laughs> the Gray Fossil Site, for those who haven't uh, heard us talk about it before, is a early Pliocene ecosystem uh, around four and a half to five million years old. Located here in East Tennessee, it is an ancient pond deposit that includes lots of aquatic life, lots of plant life, and lots of animals that lived in the environment, the forest surrounding the pond. Yeah, it's given just an amazing snapshot of the ecosystem that was there. Yes, and just there's about 200 different types of plants and animals identified. Fish, frogs, snakes, lizards, rodents, pandas, rhinos, tapirs, mastodons, and so on and so forth. Gators. Gator. Well, and I'm going to get to those. Yeah. Because at the Gray Fossil Site, we have lots of predator and herbivores at the small level. Mm -hmm. But at the large level, we have lots of herbivores. Yes. We've got tapirs, rhinos, mastodons. We've got bits and pieces of camel, ground sloth, horse. There's plenty of herbivore representation. But there are only two different large predator taxa known from the gray fossil site alligators which are abundant yes. at gray and fragmentary just little tantalizing hints of saber-toothed cat yes probably macaritus or something like macaritus this isn't altogether surprising predators tend to be much rarer in any given ecosystem than the herbivores that they need to feed upon yeah they they need a large biomass of herbivores for there to be enough baby herbivores being born yes <laughs> and for their numerous failed hunts to get enough food yes for them to survive there are a lot more zebras than lions yes and so on in this study our author colleagues identify a single right humerus that belongs to a group we have mentioned before on the podcast called the bone crushing dogs bone crushing dogs oh it's so exciting we talked about these way back in episode 94 when we talked about dogs. These are the barophagenes, so they are not canines, but they are canids. They're part of the dog group. Barophagenes are an extinct group often called bone-crushing dogs because of their powerful teeth and jaws that have led researchers to suspect that they were doing what hyenas do yes. and cracking bone to get at the nutrition within. This particular bone, this humerus, we happen to know because we work with this place, yep. has been there for a while. Yes. We've had this bone, but it hadn't been officially studied or officially identified. This study is the first to officially say we have compared this with everything we can compare it with. This humerus came from a barophagene dog, specifically the genus Barophagus. Oh, yeah. The, the, the classic. Yes. Bone crushing dogs. Which is, it's very exciting because that happens a lot at fossil sites where a Bone will come out of the ground, and most of the paleontologists or, or researchers there will say, yep, that looks like this. Mm-hmm. But until we actually take the measurements and actually compare to other specimens, you don't want to just be like, yep, for sure we have. Right. Tell everybody. It's you want to be you want to be careful because Especially if it's a it's a single little yeah. bit of a skeleton. Yeah, or if we don't have others, you know, if we haven't found others at that site already. Right. You know, if we don't have, a, a, you know, if we find a taper at that fossil site, we're able to just go, yeah, taper. Right. 
Well, like our mastodon, mm-hmm. we're we're comfortable telling everybody we have a mastodon because we have an entire skeleton yes. plus a few others. But you want to be careful, you know. You don't want to jump the gun. Yeah, one well, because it, it just it's it's a little bit embarrassing. We have to go. Hey, we've got no. Never mind. But whoops. Ooh. No, with gothiers. No, I, I never mentioned them. <laughs> I don't know what those are. They were able to determine a couple of things about this bone, about this animal from the bone. One. The level of fusion and development of the bone led them to estimate the age of this particular dog at between, I think it was 9 to 12 months, oh. just under a year. So this was a, a newish dog. It wouldn't have been like, this isn't a puppy, but like... But it's close. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and they were also able to estimate the size using a couple different methods for size estimates. They estimated the size of this individual at between 50 to 70 kilograms, or between 115 to about 160 pounds. Goodness. Which is, as Dr. Samuels told me, about the same size as large wolves today. Yeah. This was a big doggy. That's, yeah, that's a that's a dog I'd have trouble walking. <laughs> which, which brings us back around to that term I used earlier, this officially brings the number of apex predator species at gray to three. Yeah. We got gators, we got saber-toothed cats, and now we have bone-crushing dogs. Yeah. Big predators that would have been able to eat basically anything that they wanted to prey-wise at this ecosystem. Yes, yeah. There's not... The rhinos and the mastodon are, are <laughs> pretty... Sick. Right, and only when they're adults. Only when they're... <laughs> other than that... Now, this the cool. taper extravaganza. Just yeah. nom, nom, nom. Now, speaking of the lifestyle and what they were eating, this find is also interesting for a couple of notes about how these dogs were living. For one, Barophagene dogs are often found in ancient grassland habitats, more open habitats. Gray is a denser forest, which is a more unusual habitat for these dogs, which is also true of our rhinos. Mm-hmm. Teleoceros is the same situation. And they went another step and compared the shape and proportions of this arm bone to other canids and concluded that the proportions of this limb bone are less like the pursuit predators, like wolves, and more like ambush hunters. Cool. That these dogs were probably not going on long chases after their prey, like we think of with wolves today. They were probably ambush hunters. Which is so, I, I want to know which canids they were close, like, what's what's an ambush hunting dog look yeah. like? Well, this also, I, I think this is delightful because it means that all of our apex predators so far are ambush hunters. Yeah. All yeah. right, the cats are ambush hunters, <laughs> the gators, absolutely. So just, when I was, uh, I wrote the press release and I was talking to the authors about it and I got a couple of, you know, lines from them that I would then included in the press release. And one of them that Emily said is, now we've got, all three of these predators, herbivores at this ecosystem would have had to have been on high alert. Yes. <laughs> at any moment, something's just going to come jumping out of the bushes. Just teeth are going to <laughs> lunge toward you. I was yeah. just thinking that we often, a lot of the paleo art of the site kind of showed as this, this you know, somewhat idyllic pond, you know, like great place to have a picnic. You know, they'll have right. the sun coming in on the water. And, and to be fair, yeah. we do have high lifespans yes. of our animals. We have relatively low amounts of like injury and stuff, mm-hmm. for example, in our tapers. So it would it was a nice place to be, it seems. But I also love picturing it as just like 
the the forest scene from the beginning of Snow White, where just <laughs> dark trees <laughs> around every corner. And At, there are teeth. When when the sun goes down, <laughs> you got to watch out. Now, of course, this is a bone. Yes. Like all these conclusions are made off of a bone, which does not invalidate them, but it does mean there's plenty more for us to learn. Yeah, we could find the the teeth of you know the skull of this animal. It turns out that it has very specialized teeth for a specific style that we weren't expecting. And I asked both Emily and Josh what they'd like to find more of. Ooh. And Emily said uh, that her vote would be limb bones because we have a lot more to learn about how these animals were moving, mm -hmm. like their locomotion style. And Josh said skulls and teeth, of course, would be nice, which yep. is the classic answer. And then he also gave an answer that I hadn't considered. He said, if barophagine dogs are indeed <gasps> doing what hyenas do, perhaps we might someday find bones yes. that had been cracked, that had been crushed yes. by the bone-crushing dogs. Oh, yeah, which is big old molar marks on it. Yeah, <laughs> and wouldn't that be cool? That would be so <laughs> awesome. I'm so excited about these dogs. <laughs> yeah, no, this is super cool. And the press release, had Josh was able to get a bit of artwork by Mauricio Anton of a different Barophagus species that, that might be this one or might be similar to this one. They didn't identify a species, which means that our press release has this wonderful dog face going around. <laughs> yeah, we, we're going to link to the press release on the Gray Fossil Site website because as of this recording, there are no other <laughs> news articles about this because it just came out. Like You're getting the scoop. But the press release has the words bone crushing dog and apex predator right there in the title. Yeah. Plus Mauricio's artwork, so I suspect that there will be a number of news articles about this one. Yep. Oh, good stuff. So exciting. Speaking of exciting things, Allie's here with us today. Well, not right now, no. but after the break, she will be with us on that recording from a different day. <laughs> Once we travel back in time. Back in time. We are going to take a short musical interlude, and on the other side of that, we will be joined by Allie to bring us into this episode's main discussion Photosynthesis. Photosynthesis. Stay tuned. Hello, Allie. Hello, David. Welcome back. I'm so excited to be here. Y'all have gone way too long without listening to me talk about plants. Yes. You know, that's what we were just saying the other day. It's been about five months. It's, it's, you know. it, is, it is exactly that time. We, as we mentioned at the top of the episode, we received a number of requests from our listeners to do an episode about photosynthesis. And we thought that sounds like a perfect episode topic to make you tell us all about. Good. Yes. I would not trust you with it. <laughs> Nor would we trust us with it. Well, let's get into it. Allie, can you please start us off by telling us what is photosynthesis? Photosynthesis. So I have been thinking about this for a little while, and I have realized that one of my greatest pet peeves in a lot of science education is the way that people tend to overcomplicate photosynthesis. If you have taken a biology class, like an intro biology class, you have probably been scared of learning about photosynthesis because it is just presented in this really complicated way. Like, I have been that person. I have been in that position. And man, learning the details of photosynthesis is a lot. 
But we're not going to do that. Yeah. Are we going to, we're going to unmonsterify photos? Yes. Yes, today? exactly. So the way I, that we're going to talk about this is a recipe. Yeah. I, I definitely had a, the experience you were talking about. I, I ended up enjoying it by the end, but we learned every step yeah. of the chemical process. Yes. Yep. Because our intro biology person was a botanist by trade. Yes. And so we, it ended up being very fascinating by the end, but yeah, it was just circles of us going, all right, where does the ATP go now? Yes. Who has who has the electron? Where's the extra electron coming from? Exactly. How and much water do we have? The Z scheme and the fact that photosystem two comes before photosystem one, all of these terrifying things. We're not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to give you the basics and I'll build from there, but we're going to start with the basics of a recipe. And I think that a recipe makes sense because we're literally making food here. So, <laughs> here's, okay. So what we talk about are our ingredients. The main ingredients for photosynthesis are carbon dioxide and water. So it is six molecules of carbon dioxide and 12 molecules of water. Our yield, our servings are going to be one molecule of sugar, six molecules of oxygen, and six molecules of water. Okay, so going through this recipe, the first step is to draw up water and minerals. You're going to set the minerals aside for other day-to-day -day uses, and you're just gonna hold on to that water. <laughs> the second step is to take in carbon dioxide. Next, you're going to use the energy that you got from the sun to split the water molecules. Finally, you're going to discard that oxygen from that water, hold on to that hydrogen, and combine that with the carbon dioxide to form a sugar. That's photosynthesis. Yep. We did it. Yep. We did it, and you didn't even have to give us a long explanation of what you do on your vacations before we got to the recipe. <laughs> exactly. Oh, no. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So obviously, it's going to get more complicated from that. But I wanted to make sure we had this backbone where we were on the same page that really all that's happening is you are taking, you are splitting water and combining the hydrogen with the carbon dioxide. That's functionally all we're trying to do. And thinking of it that way is really useful because it is a very simple chemical equation that is ubiquitous everywhere on the planet, super important, an essential part of the cycling of materials on Earth, and basically the flip of what we do mm -hmm. when we animals engage in respiration it's sort of the, it's the, the flip side of that chemical equation. Exactly, exactly. And when you think of it that way, these simple terms in, in relation to the way that animals make energy, like it makes a whole lot of sense. And it's not as scary as trying to remember the Z scheme. I am going to yeah. complicate it a little bit, but like, just remember, that's where we live now. You're just splitting <laughs> hydrogen or you're, you're splitting off your hydrogens to make a sugar. It's going to be okay. We're in this together. <laughs> and you're giving off oxygen, yes. which is why we say plants give off oxygen, that's what we breathe, and you're creating sugars, and what the sugars are is the tasty parts of the plants. Exactly. Well, the thing about that process that always stood out to me, which also I'm proud of myself because I remembered some of the numbers of <laughs> molecules you were saying, and I was like, ah, it's all coming back. <laughs> uh, but I was always stunned by what a relatively like small step sunlight actually played in the overall process, because that's... At least in my mind, and it, it, it is very often how it is portrayed in, when talking with plants that, like, sun is the end-all be-all. And it is a critical step 
but it it's just splitting the water. Yeah. It's that's that's the only thing it's doing. It's not powering every step of the cycle, which mm-hmm. is how it seems like it should be. So I, I feel like that's another thing of it's it's actually fair like, you know, you can get as complex as you want when you do chemistry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's it's fairly straightforward. Even the sun part of it is not this like overreaching over you know crazy complex it's it is the energy to split this bond which is i don't know that that was one of the biggest shifts when i first learned about it that Mm -hmm. really changed how i looked at the process exactly exactly and that's one of the things i want i want to make photosynthesis less scary for people because normally they're like nope i'm just not gonna (laughs) think about plants ever but i'm glad that uh you brought up like giving off oxygen because that is literally the next step that I wanted to talk about. So there are technically two different types of photosynthesis. So there is the oxygenic photosynthesis, which is what we were talking about where it oxygen is generated as a byproduct. It's much more common. Like that's probably the only type of photosynthesis that most people are familiar with. There is also an oxygenic photosynthesis, which like the name suggests, does not generate oxygen as a byproduct. And that's because it's not using water. So instead of splitting water, you're splitting hydrogen sulfide. So the the hydrogen is coming from hydrogen sulfide, not H2O or water. And so instead of releasing oxygen, it's releasing elemental sulfur. Do they smell like brimstone? Well, yeah. Uh, That's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, Man. This, demon, demon uh, photosynthesis. Yeah. Photosynthesis. Kind of. So <laughs> this is found in several groups of bacteria and also some Archaeans, but they are not, they are phototrophic, but they are not photoautotrophic. So they are eating light. They are using light to make energy, but they are not doing every step by themselves. Uh, they can't fix the car- the carbon. Okay. But yeah, so they are phototrophs. They are not photoautotrophs like, you know, plants and algae and friends. Okay. So now that we've got that cleared out, I'm basically only going to be talking about oxygenic photosynthesis. I'll talk a little bit about anoxygenic when we get into like the fossil record of photosynthesis because unsurprisingly... We get both in the fossil record. Yes. But I want to talk about where photosynthesis happens. So the membranes and organelles and parts of the plants and uh, algae that actually do photosynthesis. So we'll start with plants and friends because that's the stuff we are most familiar with. And say angiosperms, so the broadleaf plants that are honestly most of the plants you probably think of. They're doing photosynthesis in their leaves. That's why the leaves are green. That is where photosynthesis is happening. Specifically, it's happening in an organelle. So a little teeny part of a little teeny plant cell uh, inside of the leaf called a chloroplast. So the chloroplast is what makes that green color. It's got lots of green stuff in it, which I will get to. There are between 10 to 100 chloroplasts within a plant, each plant cell. And then within a plant, or excuse me, within the plant cells chloroplast, you have the thylakoid. I know, right? So it's like layers upon layers upon layers upon layers upon layers, but the smallest layer is the thylakoid. It's those uh, those internet websites where you can just keep zooming in. Yes. <laughs> it's just <laughs> yes. So you have the leaf. Within the leaf, you have a cell. Within the cell, you have a chloroplast. Within a chloroplast, you have thylakoids, and that is actually where like the light is being like absorbed. It's the battery. (laughs) (laughs) 
It is the solar panel of the cell. Exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that is exactly what this is. It's exactly what it is. And, and I think the solar panel is a good comparison because the thing that I guess we should mention uh, while we're getting at our chemistry and anatomy is that photosynthesis, it's sort of the, the barest explanation of what's going on is how plants power themselves. Yeah. Yes. Like we breathe and that keeps all the internal machinery going. Photosynthesis is an alternative route to our respiration. Yeah, instead of us breathing and eating. (laughs) Yep. Plants are, well, drinking kind of, I guess. Yeah. And... And still breathing, just a different... Still breathing. (laughs) Just a different part of the atmosphere. (laughs) Yes. Exactly. The the water, the atmosphere, the sunlight, that is how plants and other photosynthesizers keep themselves going. So the solar panel comparison is very, like, plants are solar powered and we are... Uh, Stuff powered. <laughs> we we well we're engines. <laughs> yes. We you need to put fuel in. Yes. And yes. then we run hot. <laughs> we give off gross fumes. Uh, even when it went off the rails, it was still a good analogy. Right. Oh yeah. Oh, we're keeping it <laughs> keeping it on track. So uh, I mentioned the thylakoids. So within plants and algae, they are eukaryotes. So they have cell membranes. They have multiple organelles. They have multiple cells, they're more complicated. But the most important part of all of this machinery are the thylakoids. When we are talking about prokaryotes like bacteria, they don't have all that extra fancy machinery. They just have the thylakoid. Okay. So that is where they are doing photosynthesis. It, it, to me, the, the thing that came to my mind, and this is, this is you know, not quite a one-to-one, but it's it's like when we did the eyes episode and talked about that there are eyes you know with with multiple parts and organ but then you have like eye spots on flatworms mm-hmm. that can sense light they're doing part of the job of part of the eye but it's not got the rest of the enclosure and you know so it doesn't function at the same level they're they're using the part that absorbs the light but they don't have like the structure that it's housed in in plants. Exactly, exactly. So they have the bare bones. They got what they need. They don't have like the fancy rig or anything, but like they can make food. They're fine. <laughs> it's We've got chloroplast at home. <laughs> chloroplast at home. Exactly, <laughs> yes, e- exactly. So, <laughs> so now that we've talked about where photosynthesis is happening, the most important part of photosynthesis is that light capture, right? Getting that energy from the light. Because if you can't get the energy to split that water, then like you cannot make food. It's like if your oven is broken, like, well, I can't cook anything. Yes, you can have all the ingredients, but you can't get that final step. Exactly, exactly. We're just going to, I don't know, we're going out to eat every night. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's the carnivorous plant mentality. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the oven's broken. We're just going to go out to eat. So the way that light is actually uh, collected by the plants is through photosynthetic pigments, which is probably not surprising to you. I've mentioned it before. It's something that most people are probably familiar with. Photosynthesis is why plants are green. I want to really emphasize this because it's something that I found myself uh, kind of getting confused by is when we are talking about light and color. The light that you see, the color that you see is the light that is reflected. Yes. Just keep that. I I kept getting this backwards in my brain (laughs) because you see, oh, plants are green. Oh, green light. No, 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 no. That's the stuff they're not absorbing. That's the stuff that's reflected. So keep that in mind when I'm talking about 
Oh my goodness, lots of colors. <laughs> so I'll start with chlorophyll because chlorophyll is the one that most people are familiar with. Chlorophyll A, there, there are at least three types, they might be more, but there's at least three types of chlorophyll. Chlorophyll A is the main photosynthetic pigment of everybody who currently does oxygenic photosynthesis on Earth. All right. Everyone uses chlorophyll A. Everyone uses it. So it is really good at absorbing light uh, between violet blue and red orange in the color spectrum. All right. And, and it's terrible at green and things close to green. <laughs> so if you look at the maxima, it, the maximum absorption of color and so light is violet blue and orange red. Another common accessory pigment. So the pigment that a plant may have that is not chlorophyll A uh, is chlorophyll B. So a lot of land plants, green plants tend to have chlorophyll B as well. Chlorophyll B also absorbs a similar range of colors, but kind of expands a little bit the colors that uh, chlorophyll A absorbs. So it's a little bit offset. So it widens the range of light that is able to be absorbed. It's better in the blue especially, but it's really interesting because if you look at the ratio to chlorophyll A to chlorophyll B, it is an indication of how much light um, the plant is actually exposed to. So you tend to have more chlorophyll B in more shadier environments um, in order to get those different wavelengths. So if you are looking at the ratio of chlorophyll A and B, you can get a sense of kind of where uh, in terms of canopy cover a plant is living. Yeah, what kind of light exposure it's mm -hmm. specialized, it's adapted for. Exactly. The bee is making better use of lower quality light. Yes. Well, and that's an it's an interesting thought that different parts of the color spectrum are better. Mm -hmm. They're more efficient. They provide that energy better than other parts of the spectrum, which we interpret as colors. Yeah. Certain yes. colors are better for plants. Which is why when you're growing plants, there are certain colors of light that will have different effects. But if you've got multiple different yeah. capturing mechanisms, you can capture different sections of the light spectrum. So uh, casting a wider net. Uh, and and I don't know if you were going to go into the, the wavelength stuff, but that like blue light makes sense. Because the reason we see different colors is because they're different wavelengths and blue is a very high energy wavelength. Yes, exactly. It is a higher energy than other colors, so it carries more oomph than the most of the rest of the spectrum. More bang for your buck. Yes. <laughs> uh, we'll, uh, we'll, I'll talk about that a little bit when we start talking about how different fluids other than air uh, affect light. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But So there's also chlorophyll C, which primarily absorbs violet blue, yellow, and red light, and therefore reflects the, like a blue-green color. This is found in marine algae. So we see this oh, in yeah. our diatoms, in our brown algae, our dinoflagellates, and that is because of just the way that, you know, like light goes through water. Yes. So that's chlorophyll. That's the one that most people are familiar with. Another one that you've probably heard 
about. So the next most common type of pigment are your carotenoids. So these, again, we have these in plants, we have these in algae, even bacteria and fungi have uh, carotenoids. They're not necessarily using them for photosynthesis, but they got them. And there are thousands of types, just like thousands of types of carotenoids. You've probably heard of some of them, like beta carotene. Yeah, okay. That is a carotenoid. There's a whole lot of them. So uh, they are especially efficient at absorbing red, orange, and yellow light. They are also one of the dominant pigments for autumn leaf coloration. That's why you have those red Mm -hmm. and orange and yellow leaves. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then finally, the... Pigment that I had never heard of until I started researching this because it's not found in plants. (laughs) So these are the phycobilins. There are four main types of phycobilins. They are especially efficient at absorbing red, orange, yellow, and green light. So they're, they're basically the opposite of chlorophyll. Yeah. Huh. Yes. So this is really interesting. I'm not going to go into precisely what each type of phycobilin does, but if you are an algae living in shallow water, light can get through that better. So you tend to have phycobilins that are better at absorbing yellow and red light because that's what's coming into you. In deeper water, you they tend to have phycobilins that are better at absorbing green light because again, that's what's going to be making it down to these greater depths in order to photosynthesize. One last thing I wanted to mention about phycobilins, because I was like, that name sounds real familiar. If you've ever heard of bilirubin, which is an animal protein that is in, it's a bile enzyme. It's the reason why when you have jaundice, you'll turn yellow. Oh, okay. So this is interesting because we're talking about pigments and we've talked about pigments before. And so often when we mention pigments, we're talking about things that provide color. Mm-hmm. And that's what we think of. We think of melanins in, in humans. These are our uh, humans and other animals, the kind of pigments we have are materials inside our cells that provide color. But we've also hinted at this before that pigments can provide a variety of different process a variety of different purposes and tasks yeah for example a lot of pigments are structural they can help provide structure a lot of pigments help protect us against certain kinds of radiation like uv radiation plants and other photosynthesizers have pigments that are giving them color but then all the colors in the spectrum that they're not reflecting they're absorbing and using for photosynthesis So they're fascinating multi-purpose structures. Yes. Well, and it's an interesting situation because when we talk about pigments in animals, typically the purpose of that pigment is to color the animal. You know, it's it's not usually caring about what light it's absorbing. It's caring about what light it's giving off. Mm -hmm. Here, the primary purpose of these plant pigments is what they're absorbing. The color is, I'm sure it it has huge adaptive uh, purposes uh, but is secondary that that is not the reason we didn't get these pigments aren't here so that we can be green right the plants aren't showing off to each other yes look at look at my cool green coloration like animals are doing <laughs> yes exactly they're like look how good i am at absorbing blue light yes right <laughs> exactly. well, and, you don't see any blue here i'm absorbing all of it i'm super good at it uh i have i have a question that i know i've seen come up in this regard uh in previous co- you know classes and conversations 
is that it makes perfect sense that they have these pigments to absorb light so that they can photosynthesize. Mm -hmm. Why then are they not black? I bet you that's a heat thing. That's what I assume too. And I just, I was curious yeah. what your thoughts were is that they would overheat so, so quickly. Yes. If, if they absorbed all the it, yes. colors yes. on the Yes, if, if, if they were able to absorb every color, I, I imagine that that would be a heat problem because plants already have a lot of trouble with heat. Uh, they, yeah. re they really have to be good about like uh, regulating temperature because if the temperatures get too high, you just can't do biological processes. Yeah, and, and you are the shade, so you can't yes! go find shade. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. So that would be, that would be my hypothesis that like that's, and it also might not be, it also might not be that much better. That's that was the other thought I had. Uh, just for any listeners out there that wonder what we're talking about, uh, black absorbs all wavelengths of light, which is why it looks black to us because it is not reflecting much to you. Uh, that's why like Vanta black and those paints that are ridiculously dark look like a black hole because no, almost no light is coming back out. But it also means absorbing all that light heats them up quickly. That's why a dark colored car heats up warmer in the parking lot than a light colored car. Mm -hmm. White reflects more light. But yeah, I've always assumed that it either would be a heat thing or that getting all that middle wavelength really doesn't actually yeah. increase your efficiency much. It just gives you heat problems. <laughs> so just getting the light you need, getting the best bandwidths yeah. gives you everything you need without overheating you so quickly. Makes sense. Or like the the good enough bandwidths. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like this works. This gives yeah, me food. This it's great. It gets the job done. It doesn't cook me. I like that. Exactly. Okay. So I know that I was very general about most of the things, but I do want to talk about my favorite enzyme. It's great. I swear. It's super relevant and really, it's really cute. So its name is Rubisco. <laughs> this this cute, really does sound like a cooking Delicious episode. cookies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, it is. It, the name is literally because uh, it was named because it sounded similar to Nabisco. Ha! <laughs> ah, other cookie brands are available. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the full name of this is ribulose 1,5-biphosphate carboxylase oxygenase. Uh, so oh, Rubisco. So it's Rubisco to its friends. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So Rubisco is the enzyme that is involved in the first step of carbon fixation. So all that means is making that, that sugar. Yeah. It is often called the most abundant enzyme on Earth. Ooh. Wow. Cool. <laughs> Yeah, which like that's a bold title, and I'm I'm here for it. Yeah, it is the most abundant protein in leaves. Okay, that makes sense. Makes sense. I, that's that's the number one job of leaves. Yeah, you want to you need to end up with that food. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it its job is to bind carbon dioxide. That is its job. It is supposed to grab on to carbon dioxide. It is normally very good at its job. However. <laughs> <laughs> Under certain circumstances, it can also bind to oxygen. So when the, we'll talk about plants because it's the thing that I am most um, specifically familiar with, but this is true of other photosynthesizers. When they are bringing in atmo the atmosphere in order to bring in CO2, oxygen gets into like, it's just kind of popping around in there, but like the plant is ignoring it because it is not important for the process. But it yes. is also just bopping around inside the inside of the organism in low temperature and 
uh, high CO2 environments, like higher uh, CO2 environments, Rubisco will preferentially bind with CO2. That's great. That's what we want. In high temperature and low CO2 environments, Rubisco will bind with oxygen. This is a problem because it makes kind of trash. So instead yeah. of making a sugar that the plant can use, it makes this unusable product that the plant then will have to use additional energy to break down in order to use it for something. Gotcha. And so so that leads to a net loss of carbon and nitrogen and will limit the growth of the plant. So like the plant does not want rubisco to go philandering with oxygen. Well, it's it this makes me think of two things in the human body. It's Similar to the concept of like why it can be confusing why uh, sodas and drinks like that mm-hmm. can dehydrate you because there's so much stuff in it that your body's going to have to dissolve and break down with the water you have. Exactly. That you're actually using more water to process this than any of the water that was put into the soda. And the fact that like it prefers carbon, but every now and then in bad situations, it can bind to oxygen. Maybe think of uh, red blood cells and oh, what is it? Carbon monoxide? Yes. Or yeah, yeah. that carbon monoxide interacts with our red blood cells in a very similar way. Mm-hmm. And if there's too much in your atmosphere, in the room you're in, yep. you know, or whatever situation, your blood cells are now grabbing it instead of the oxygen that's going to feed your cells and mm-hmm. you are going to suffocate yes. even if there's oxygen in the room. Yes, Exactly. Exactly. So this is bad. This is bad for plants. They do not, like, you know, any photosynthesizer is going to be in trouble if too much of verbisco is binding with oxygen and making basically garbage. And so to get around this, plants have evolved. Yeah, plants. It's plants. Plants have evolved. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was generalizing, but I wasn't. Alternative. I had to check your plant privilege. I did. I I had to check my plant bias. Like, is this actually plants? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, so plants have a, have evolved additional alternative photosynthetic pathways, and they're probably some that you've heard of, C4 and CAM. Right, right, right. And you've, you've mentioned those to us in previous episodes. I have. So C4 photosynthesis is named because the first carbon chain uh, that is made in the carbon fixation process has four sugars. Go team. I love when a name makes sense like that. So in order to prevent rubisco from binding with oxygen instead of carbon dioxide, the plant wants to increase the concentration of CO2 around rubisco. So the way that C4 plants do that is by making a little compartment. It's got a little little bubble for it. It's like, this is where you're going to photosynthesize. It's often called Krantz anatomy. It's a German word that means wreath. So it's basically just a little wreath that you can see in the cross section of uh, like a leaf where inside that is where rubisco is doing its carbon fixation thing so that it is in a very pleasant carbon dioxide rich environment yeah yeah it's it's really nice it's a preferred atmosphere exactly so this means that plants are separating the steps of photosynthesis in space it means that in like drought conditions or high temperatures or uh, low nitrogen or low CO2, C4 plants will have an uh, an advantage over C3 plants because it takes a little bit more energy, but it is much more efficient. Yeah, because like even if you're in a situation where oxygen is high and CO2 is low, eventually you will still get enough oxygen to put in those those 
canisters. Yes. Yes. And have Rabisco react properly. Yes, exactly. So you can store it to make sure that, you know, you are as efficient as possible when you are actually, you know, actively trying to photosynthesize. And C4 plants, if I remember right, include all of our grasses and then some other like arid, right, dry adapted yes. plants. And I'll, whereas I'll... C3 plants is basically everybody else. Yeah, I'll, I'll get into the details of it. But generally speaking, that is an accurate assessment of it. Cool. Yeah. So then the other type of photosynthesis uh, is CAM photosynthesis. So CAM actually stands for, as I've written in my notes, its full name is uh, <laughs> Crashulacean Acid Metabolism. Oh, CAM. All right. Yeah, CAM. 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 Um, <laughs> I, I, I want to emphasize that... It is named such because it is the mechanism of acid metabolism in Crassulaceae. There is no Crassulacean acid. So that's not the name of the acid. It is the name of the type of plant that they first found this acid metabolism in. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just to clear that up. <laughs> I love this. I was looking a little bit into the history of this discovery of this. And I found this delightful little note that in, 18, or in 1812, excuse me, Benjamin Hein, Hein, I'm sorry, Benjamin, noted that bryophyllum leaves in India were acidic in the morning and tasteless by afternoon. Huh. Dude Whoa. was tasting leaves. <laughs> science. <laughs> yeah, it's very science. This is very, this like, is, This 19th is historically century. how you do science. Yep. You just stick random stuff in your mouth do and not see do what this. happens. Well, do this not do this. Way, this. Do not do this. This was way before <laughs> the should you lick it post made it around the internet. Yes. Right. All right, so... Yes, public service announcement. Do not just randomly put leaves in your mouth. As a botanist, I have to say, do not do this. But yes, so what happens in CAM photosynthesis is a little bit different. So C4, we separate the steps of photosynthesis in space. In CAM photosynthesis, we are separating the steps of photosynthesis in time. So we're doing the same sort of thing, right? Where we are building up the concentration of CO2 within the leaf so that rubisco is in its preferred atmosphere. But uh, instead of doing it with a little bubble, we're just closing the doors during the day. So basically the way that this works is at night, the plant will open up its stomata to allow CO2 to enter into the, uh, the leaf and will begin the process of... Photosynthesis. So basically, they will fix the CO2 into an organic acid and then put it away to be stored for later. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're just gonna, we're gonna put these uh, acids in the fridge for later, which is, it's kind of similar to the start of C4 photosynthesis. And then during the day, they will close their stomata and they will release the stored organic acids in order to finish, finish the process. Yeah, this was, this was by far my favorite photosynthesis that I mm -hmm. learned about back in school was because it's it because these this is common in like desert plants right yes, yes. like uh, cacti and stuff mm -hmm. do this yes is they breathe at night inhale all the CO two hold the that that byproduct until daytime stop breathing so they don't I I also know that that helps them without with drying out as yes, well because exactly you're losing moisture to the air exactly uh, and so that you're not taking in that hot air with all the uh, imbalance. And then you use the sun during the day to process what you breathed at night. Mm -hmm. And that's so cool. <laughs> well, it's it's cool because photosynthesis, B 
being a process, it is a chemical process of many, many steps, is modular. Yeah. Yes. In so you, you can replace some of the steps. You can spread out some of the steps for your different needs in different circumstances. Well, and it, it also, it it's always cool when you can, as a as an animal person, you know, as a person who knows animals, it's always cool when you get to a part of plant behavior, you know, plant biology that you can go, actually, no, that like, that it's not exactly the same, but that is nocturnal behavior in these plants. Like yes. they change how they function during the night versus during the day. That's very cool. That's yeah. awesome. I like them. Mm-hmm. They're my friends. <laughs> okay. And so if we are trying to figure out why it matters that photosynthesis exists, I'll talk about this a little bit more, but basically photosynthesizers are the primary producers in most environments, terrestrial and marine. So having an understanding, even just general of literally where <laughs> all of the energy originally comes from, it's kind of important, right? Like we are, we are definitely benefiting from all of these photosynthesizers. <laughs> so like, I mean, show some respect, really. Oh, yeah. And this <laughs> is a very basic concept in ecology. Like th- mm-hmm. this idea is is taught to students before they're taught the word ecology. Yes. <laughs> that ecosystems, most ecosystems on our planet are solar powered. Yes. Right? The sunlight forms the energy that basically fuels the entire, all the different trophic levels, right? Your predators, your herbivores, and so on. Photosynthesizers are the component of the ecosystem that has the machinery to capture and harness that energy and it, from there, that energy spreads out to all the rest of the ecosystem. If you got rid of the photosynthesizers, that sunlight is just causing heat and bouncing away. It's yes. not doing anything. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, it'd be like just pouring gasoline all over a parking lot. Yeah. It's like, yeah. if, if it's not going in the right place, <laughs> none of that's going to be used for anything. Exactly. Well, <laughs> the reason it's so critical from like a, a Earth system standpoint is because every other aspect of ecosystems on our planet is a closed system the fact like how many minerals we have is a set number yes like we're not getting new minerals on the planet very often at least (laughs) that how much space we have is a set like all the other aspects of life are closed system it is only on this rock and if it's not on this rock you're not getting more of it or you're not getting it the only exception to that is sunlight which is coming from out outer space adding to our planet every single day so the plants taking advantage of that is the only way for us to get an input of energy that is not closed system that is not already coming from our planet so we utilizing that is huge it, it's it's the only efficient way to be a planet full of life <laughs> well and the, the kind of the interesting thing is that you know you're talking about this light is coming from outer space which is literally true but it's also kind of why it's easy to think of plants as alien, either literally oh, yeah. aliens, but just generally alien. It is so different from our experience as animals. And so kind of the perception very often is when we are talking about plant processes is that it's strange or it's a difficult, it's a complicated process. Not necessarily. It's just a different process and maybe not something that you can relate to or may not have been explained to you in a way that you understood, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it is unknowable or ununderstandable. 
Yeah. Well, it's it's the, for most of life or uh, for most of animal life, the fact that we are floating in space around a burning ball of plasma, it is a big deal. But like, that's not what you're eating and everything. But the plants are directly relying on that ball of plasma. Yes. <laughs> for every single bit of their food. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. So when we're talking about photosynthesis, and, and we've already hinted at this, obviously the famous photosynthesizers, what we all think about when we think of photosynthesis, and the reason that this is an episode that ends in a five is because plants do it. Yes. That's why we have Allie here to talk to us about, about that. But as you've already hinted at in your discussion of what photos, of how it works, not plants are not the only photosynthesizers. There are others. And not all plants photosynthesize the same way. Correct. So can can you give us sort of a rundown? What is the diversity, not just of photosynthesis itself, but of the things that are doing photosynthesis? So Who are the light eaters? Oh, yes. All right. <laughs> we are going to start as far from plants as you can get. And then we are going to build our way up to plants because like... I wanna I want us to leave this section on a on a relatable note. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> on a high note. Something yes. something eukaryotic for us to yes, identify e- with. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So when we are talking about the not plants who are photosynthesizers, and specifically not eukaryotes who are photosynthesizers, that is going to be cyanobacteria, the blue-green algae. So I was thinking about this as I was preparing for this episode. The scales that we are dealing with in this episode are so variable because when I am talking about photosynthesis, literally the process of photosynthesis, like we're talking about individual cells and like Mm -hmm. enzymes within a cell. And now I'm going to start talking about phyla. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Just like huge jumps in scales. Yeah, this significant chunk of life. Yeah, exactly. So... Friendly reminder, taxonomically, when we are talking about the the group that is phylum, so below kingdom is phylum, uh, it is not called phylum when you're talking about plants, it's a division. So when I, I will be using these terms interchangeably, they are the same, they are equivalent, but plant and animal people, we use different terms for that le- level of the taxonomic hierarchy, so... Just to mix things up. Just to make it a slightly more confusing. Yeah, you know. Oh, for sure. Like, we could, you could have a whole conversation about the differences between the taxonomic rules for plants and animals. I find it utterly fascinating, and I will talk your ear off about it if you give me half a chance, but I digress. Anyway, this is a phylum, or division, depending on who you're talking to, of gram-negative bacteria. So what that means is it is a prokaryote, um, so it doesn't have all the fancy extra cell stuff, but it does have a cell envelope so it is uh not super squishy there's a little bit uh of a of an envelope around this cell so it is gram negative bacteria this group includes plastids mm-hmm. plastids are the the friends who become the chloroplasts in plants and algae through endosymbiosis yes gotcha so they've got sort of a half a chloroplast or they kind of are they are or they, or they are <laughs> they are the chloroplast they are the chloroplast the group that includes that is called cyanobacteria includes the group that went gotcha. on to get eaten <laughs> gotcha. so we talked about this in previous episodes we've mentioned this a couple times the idea that eukaryotic organisms 
have cells that have organelles in them, specifically mitochondria and chloroplasts, that evolutionarily, ancestrally, are separate cells. Yes. So that mitochondria and chloroplasts are descended from smaller prokaryotic cellular ancestors that became absorbed into larger cells to create the kinds of animals and plant cells we see today. So the plastids, a subgroup of cyanobacteria, are the group that gave rise not to plants, but to <laughs> the chloroplasts <laughs> inside plants. Yes. yes. Exactly. Cool. Yeah, we talked about this a ton in the symbi the symbiosis mm -hmm. episode, because this is the endosymbiosis. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So as a group, cyanobacteria are optimized for low oxygen environments. They can also be nitrogen fixing. They tend to live in like colonial aggregates, but they can also be unicellular, just solo little little uh little cells there. The colonies can be filamentous or sheets, or hollow spheres, which I thought was neat. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they are the primary producers in marine environments. Like, it is cyanobacteria. They can also be free-living in soils. They can form symbiotic relationships with plants. They can form symbiotic relationships with fungi to become lichen. They're, they are so wide-ranging. They can be filamentous. Uh, the filamentous form that you'll uh, you'll see tend to dominate upper layers of microbial mats in all sorts of environments. So they probably originated in freshwater, maybe a terrestrial environment, but the important thing to note is that they only have thylakoids because the thylakoid is within a chloroplast, but the chloroplast is actually a type of cyanobacteria. So they've only got the... the the thylakoids, they will photosynthesize using C3 photosynthesis using chlorophyll A, and their accessory pigments are phycobilins. Uh, and that's actually what causes this blue-green color. The reason they are called cyanobacteria is because they are full of these phycobilins that give them that distinct color. All right. All right. And that is it for prokaryotes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So those are the only ones. Yes. They're basically all with... There are some... That I, I'm, I'm only really looking at the oxygenic ones. Gotcha. And oxygenic is weird. So we're going to be talking about oxygenic primarily. I had sure. to <laughs> simplify so much stuff. Like this is still still so long. And oh man, I had to cut so much stuff. And we <laughs> appreciate it. We'll do photosynthesis part two some other uh, electric, yeah. electric boogaloo. All right. So next <laughs> we are moving up to the eukaryotes, which include... Everybody else, specifically algae, which includes everybody else. Let me repeat that: algae includes everybody else. Boy, we're making we're making phylogenetic statements. Oh, right I, here. I am. I Continue. am. Continue. I am. Algae is a polyphyletic grouping. Um, so there's a lot going on in terms of multiple groups being included, parts of some groups being included. We'll talk about this a little bit more. Algae as a group. Includes clades with primary plastids. So what that means is it includes all of the groups that have chloroplasts from that cyanobacteria that was consumed in endosymbiosis. So all eukaryotes who photosynthesize use, have primary plastids that they got from endosymbiosis of a cyanobacteria. Just find very funny. They're just eating mm -hmm. each other over here. <laughs> so I'm going to talk with the group you... 
I'm going to start with the group that you are probably not familiar with because I was not familiar with it. They're called the Glockophytes. So they are a division, right? So again, this really big group of plants. There are only 14 to 26 species. Wow. Wow. Right? Like that was not the number <laughs> that I'm sure you were anticipating. Yeah, a few less zeros than I was expecting Ex- to be on the end of that. Exactly. They are freshwater unicellular algae and they only reproduce asexually. Huh. Yeah, right? Like utterly fascinating. These are like a place of active study. We have so much to learn about them. It's kind of neat. They they're the modal forms have Two unequal flagella. So they got little tails helping them move around, (laughs) which is utterly adorable. Um, The cool thing about this group is that the plastids, so the the chloroplasts uh, within the cells, retain the peptidoglycan layer. So what that means is cyanobacteria are gram negative. The reason they're gram negative is because they have a cellular envelope, which is a peptidoglycan layer. That layer is retained in the plastids in glaucophytes, which is kind of a relic of their endosymbiotic origin, which is really neat. We don't see that in any other group. Yeah, so they they still have that bacterial covering to their chloroplasts. That's very interesting. Yes. And their accessory pigment is phycobilin. They have that kind of like blue-green look to it. So... Moving up in complexity and in terms of things that you might have heard, and you've probably heard of, you just might not have known it, are the red algae. Yeah. So again, this is a division rhodophyta. So they're the red plants, the red algae. Um, there are more than 7,000 species of, of red algae. So a few more than we had of the glaucophytes. Yes, slightly more diverse. They are multicellular marine algae. They are very rare in freshwater environments, uh, and there are no known terrestrial red algae. Hmm. Their accessory pigment is also phycobilin, a different type this time, which is giving them their red kind of brownish color. This group includes seaweeds that you've probably heard of. So like dulse and the lava, like the, that's the nori seaweed. They're also used to make agar and carrageenan, which is what is used in a lot of ice cream as a thickener. Uh, Oh, cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. So last group is the green algae. So green algae is a paraphyletic group. Green algae is like a bird. Or rather, plants are like birds. Plants are like birds, and green algae is like reptiles. <laughs> because, <laughs> technically speaking, I somehow along the way, I misunderstood this. In When I was being taught this, I thought that green algae and plants, and land plants, shared a common ancestor. No, 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 no. Land plants evolved from green algae. So, okay. they are technically... All related. So instead of saying higher plants, you should say drier algae. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I saw that and I was like, yep, I'm going to do this now. So we're still going to talk about them separately because they do have many differences. And it just for ease of communication, green algae, land plants. There are about 22,000 species of green algae. This includes unicellular things, uh, colonial flagellates, which is just a fun phrase to say, mm-hmm. colonial coccoid filamentous forms, uh, and multicellular seaweeds. Nice. 
The chloroplasts use chlorophyll A and B and carotenoid accessory pigments, specifically beta carotene, which is good at red orange and xanthophyll, which is good as yellow. All right. And finally, the best kind of algae, which is actually plants. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to go through this rather quickly because I have talked about plants a lot. So instead, I'm going to kind of categorize it by the type of photosynthesis that these plants do. So when we're thinking about C3 photosynthesis, that includes your non-vascular, non-seed plants. So your bryophytes, your liverworts, your hornworts. It also includes your vascular non-seed plants. So lycophytes, horsetails, ferns, things like that. As well as your vascular seed plants. So gymnosperms and most angiosperms. Okay. All right. So that's C3. That's the basics. C4. There's about... Probably more than, but around 8,000 species of plants that do C4 photosynthesis. So in terms of known plants, so known land plants, that's about 3% of all plants. Hmm. Um, It is most common by species in monocots. So those are going to be your grasses and friends like that. About 40% of monocots are uh, doing C4 photosynthesis. Only about 4.5% of dicots do uh, C4 photosynthesis. However, it's only three families of monocots versus 15 families of dicots. Weird. Yeah. It's spread a little thinner in dicots, but it's, it's spread out there. Yeah. It's most common in the family Poaceae, which is the most common, the biggest family of grasses. So it has arisen 20 times in grasses. C4 plants tend to be herbaceous. There are only a few trees. Polonia, which is the empress tree that's from uh, China, as well as a couple species of euphorbia, uh, which look like cacti, but aren't. When they get big enough, sometimes they have more of a tree-like form. And then cam, this I did not know. And I am very cranky that I did not know this until I I was preparing for this episode. Cam photosynthesis occurs in about 16,000 species. Wow. About 7% of all known plants do CAM photosynthesis. Cool. I had no idea. I had no idea. So the majority of them are epiphytes, succulents, things like that. When you think about um, a CAM plant, you know, CAM photosynthesis, you're going to think of like cacti and bromeliads and things like that. But there's a lot more diversity than I initially realized. Because normally when when I was taught about CAM, it was like, and there's another one. But we're going to move on. We're not going to fixate on that. Same. Currently, we only know of C4 photosynthesis and angiosperms. I had assumed that, that was also the case with CAM. And it is not. <gasps> <laughs> that, that is the correct response. Um, it is mm-hmm. most common in angiosperms. But it is not only found in angiosperms. It is found... In ferns, lycophytes, cycads, and nidophytes, specifically Welwichia, which is the the weirdest little like Namibian um, desert plant. But yeah, it's found in quill warts, things like that. It's found in aquatic plants as well as um, as well as desert plants. It is 
found in trees. There are some trees in the genus Clusia that within a single species, depending on where they're living, they might undergo C3 photosynthesis, they might undergo CAM photosynthesis. Whoa. In addition, there are plants that can do CAM or another kind of photosynthesis. So sometimes it is like, uh, what was the word? Uh, it's not ob uh, obligate, but basically it's like structural. They can only do it one way, but there are some that are facultative, like they can switch. So there are species of like house plants. So there's Peperomia, uh, Portulaca that can use CAM in another type of photosynthesis, basically depending on which one is better for the plant at that time. So uh, how, how desert like that house that they're exactly. living in. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it can happen in the same leaves at the same time. It cannot happen in the same cells at the same time. But you can have cells within a single leaf that are ready for C4 and CAM photosynthesis be <sighs> because they're not mutually exclusive. So they can't like double up, do CAM and like super CAM with like C4 built on, but they can use both depending on what they need. That's awesome. That's very cool because I guess what by the way that you explained it before and the way that it's often discussed, it's easy to imagine that the specific specialized types of photosynthesis are something that this group of plants does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That it, you do that instead of doing all this. But it sounds like photosynthesis in plants is just extremely variable. Yes. To the point that... Many, many different groups of plants have convergently hit upon these alternate variants of photosynthesis. But much like how we talked, uh, we've talked about this in previous episodes. Uh, I remember when I first learned that there are plants that, depending on how they feel, will be a shrub or a tree or a vine. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because they can choose that. Yes. Th you can choose to do different kinds of photosynthesis, but also like on a different day. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I, I was blown away when you said the number of cam plants as well, but it does make sense that like C4, you need a special structure. Yes, you exactly. Know, you have to have that gas canister that you're going to fill with CO2 mm -hmm. to make sure things are binding correctly. But cam's just changing your schedule. Yeah. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> It's just delaying yeah. the process. As long part. as you can store all that good CO2 you got during the night, mm -hmm. then you're you're good to go. Just batten down the hatches during the day. Yeah, that's fan. So it makes sense that it now that you've said it, it makes perfect sense that it's variable and very very common that many plants would go. Hey, what if we just close the doors when it gets real hot? Exactly. Like <laughs> exactly. That's so cool, though. Yeah, I so I went home late from work the day that I was working on this <laughs> script because I got so in the weeds about camp photosynthesis. It was utterly amazing to me because I was so angry that I didn't yeah. realize this. Like I, I always kind of liked Cam because it felt like the odd one out, and like it was the one that the no edgy one. one. Exactly, it's the one that no one ever talked about because you talk about C three and C four, C three, C four, and then oh, Cam is different. But like Cam has is like of the alternative pathways, you know, C four and Cam. It's much more common and has come come up in many more groups of plants. So like. I, I feel like I need to campaign for cam photosynthesis. A campaign. <laughs> a campaign. Uh, <laughs> Fascinating. Well, all this talk about the diversity of photosynthesis and the different ways that photosynthesizers use photosynthesis has me wondering. I have I have so many questions. 
I'm going to ask a few of them and then we can move on. <laughs> Question number one, you talked about how plants are photosynthesizing in their leaves. The leaves are green. That's because that are there plants that photosynthesize with like like their stems are often green. Do, can they photosynthesize with other parts of the, the plant body? With their whole self? I mean... And then as sort of a corollary to that, are there plants that aren't using their leaves, like plants with weirdly colored leaves, like red leaves and purple leaves? Like, can they, can they shift it around? All right. I love this. Okay. So if you've ever seen a cactus then you know that plants can photosynthesize with other parts of their body. Oh, Makes that's a good sense. point. <laughs> yeah. So cactus leaves, for those unfamiliar, are the pointy bits. Yep. yep. The little needles, that's the leaf. But that's a great question, right? Because when we, we normally think about this as a leaf thing, I talked about it as a leaf thing, but like as long as you got a green bit and can get the, the, the components, you know, get the ingredients to your recipe in the right place, like you can photosynthesize anywhere. So yes, short answer, yes. You can photosynthesize anywhere. You can, I don't know, grab some light. Yeah. With respect to other colors. Yes. If you've ever seen, like, there are a lot of um, ornamental plants will have funny colored leaves, right? So, like, Tradescandia is purple, or there's a lot of maples with purple leaves. And so it's, uh, you look at that and you're like, that's not green. How do you eat? Mm -hmm. It is green. You just can't see it. What? What? Now you're just making stuff up. I'm not. I told you they were all using chlorophyll A as their primary pigment. But I also told you you, they used carotenoids as accessory pigments. That's what you're seeing. So in those purple leaves, you are what we are visually seeing are the pigments of the like an anthocyanin is a common one for the purple. But like it's still absorbing uh, those other wavelengths, it just happens to reflect a little bit more in that kind of purple color. But like the chlorophyll is still there. The chlorophyll is still absorbing all that stuff, even if we can't see it. it yeah, the, gotcha. the purple color it's, it's is overriding. It's yes. overpowering it. Exactly. Well, that, that reminds me, and I know I've said this before on the podcast, um, we are recording this. It is still snake month <laughs> this particular day in real life. So I'm going to bring up the snakes. I always love bringing up the fact that green snakes are snakes with yellow pigment and blue structural coloration. Yes. So that the structure of the scales is releasing blue light and the pigments in there are releasing yellow light. So when the snake is alive, they combine to make green. But that's why when green snakes die, they become blue because the pigments go away. The cells stop producing those pigments. Because you can have multiple sources of color Mm -hmm. that can combine or override each other. So I assume that, and and I also know that when when leaves change colors, like in the fall, that has to do with the pigmentation changing as the leaves die. Exactly. Exactly. I loved watching your faces as I explained both of those to you. Like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Here's another question while we're getting conspiratorial. Oh, I'm ready. (laughs) Mm. Uh, You talked about how plants can change, you know, they they, they modify their type of photosynthesis or Mm -hmm. what kind of pigments they're using for it in different light environments. Mm -hmm. So like lots of sunlight, they might do one thing. Little sunlight, they might do another thing. Mm -hmm. Can plants photosynthesize with moonlight? Ooh. I... I don't know. 
I'm not sure. I don't see why not, because mm-hmm. it is still sunlight, you know, just got right. reflected an extra time. I wonder effective it would be. You right. know? Like, it's, I imagine it's weaker sunlight. Yeah. It's much more scattered. There's yeah. a reason it's a different color. It yeah. is It is significantly like reflected light is often fundamentally changed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that's just the physics of light that you do not get the same light back exactly that you reflected a lot of the time, especially depending on the material because the moon absorbs a lot of the light too. Yes. Right. Like it's not reflecting at all. Yeah, because that's a good point. That's a good point. So if you've ever played D and D or ever, you know, <laughs> lived in the world once or twice, once or twice, but you know that when even if you're playing a character that has dark vision, you can't see color in the dark, mm-hmm. and that's basically mm-hmm. that's plants are working with color. Yeah. So I would suspect that because you don't really have that range of color, that strength of color uh, for the pigments to absorb and reflect. I don't think that moonlight would be particularly effective, but I'm not sure. And that's a neat, that's a neat question. Well, yeah. the moon's probably eating some of the color that yeah, the plants need. Exactly. Absolutely. It Rude. Is. Well, and <laughs> I would assume that if it was a situation where you had plants that only had moonlight that evolved only having moonlight, they absolutely would evolve to utilize it because it's light, so it has energy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like, it has, you know, a, a, a power in its wavelengths, but it's it's going to be much lower, so they'd probably never be as efficient as plants using the sun. Exactly. Very cool. Yeah. Well, thank you for indulging my curiosity. I will stop asking questions uh, along those lines now because we have a whole other topic to get to, and that is the history of photosynthesis. So let's go ahead and take a break. And then after the short break, we will get into the evolution of photosynthesis and what has happened with this wacky process over time. Back in a second. Bye. So Allie, As with all things in life, photosynthesis has to have started at at least once, question mark, (laughs) somewhere at some time. Uh, This is an extremely ancient feature of life. So I expect that there will be lots of mystery surrounding the question I'm about to ask. What do we know about the origins of photosynthesis? So you are definitely correct about both how ancient the origin is and how kind of mysterious it is, because what we're talking about is a chemical pathway. Mm -hmm. And that... It's just carbon and hydrogen and oxygen bouncing around on each other. Exactly. Exactly. So it's... Gotta get creative. So I don't normally like doing this, but I'm going to run us through the history just real quick because I'm going to use that as kind of the framework that I'm going to fill in later. But I want to make sure that we are oriented in time before I go on. So starting at the beginning, about roughly 4.6 billion years ago, we have the formation of the earth. That's when all the good stuff starts, really. About 4.3 billion years ago, we have the origin of liquid water. That's important, right? That's when we can really get the ball rolling on things. Between about 3.8 and 3.4 billion years ago, right? Like we're billion with a B. This is a long, long time ago. <laughs> this is when we see the first anoxygenic photosynthesis of bacteria, right? 
So it's roughly a billion years after the formation of the earth. <laughs> right? So like this is old, old stuff. The It's important to note that, again, we are talking about anoxygenic photosynthesis. So this is does not form oxygen as a byproduct. And I had talked previously about hydrogen sulfide. The first reductant, so the first thing that was being broken down, was not originally hydrogen sulfide. It was originally just hydrogen, H2. Oh. Yes. So in the beginning, the first photosynthesis was just breaking down hydrogen, which does make sense when you're thinking about, like, the building blocks that are going to be available that far back. Yep. Hydrogen sulfide oxygenic photosynthesis followed not too long after, but over time it became less abundant and became restricted to special environments such as around volcanoes and things like that. So hydrogen sulfide had its day and kind of has waned through time. About 300 billion years ago, this is debated. It's fascinating. Again, I went down a long rabbit trail. There seems to be some sort of speculation, some evidence that there was possible anoxygenic uh, photosynthesis using ferrous iron as the reductant. Weird. Yeah. So this is actually something that occurs rarely, but does occur today in certain circumstances. So a cool side effect of this is that it could have produced banded iron formations that are similar mm-hmm. to the ones that were produced by oxygenic photosynthesis. Right. Which is, there's, huh. a lot of this is kind of speculative. Like, there's a whole lot of current research and debate going on as to how widespread and what time this iron photosynthesis is happening. But I, I had never heard of that before, and I thought it was really neat. As we continue on, about 28 2.7 billion years ago is when we have the first oxygenic photosynthetic bacteria. So it is approximately a billion years after the first anoxygenic photosynthesis. So like, <laughs> it's it's taken a while, but we're starting to get the ball rolling and starting to see things that we recognize. And once we get there, things start ramping up. So about 2.4 to 2.3 billion years ago is when we see physical evidence, stratigraphic evidence for an increase in atmospheric oxygen. Right. About 1.2 billion years ago, we see the origins of red and brown algae. About 750 million years ago, we're in the millions now. Hey. We see the origin of green algae. Around 475 million years ago, we have the origin of land plants. And then around 423 million years ago, we have the origin of vascular plants. So... There's a long, there's a lot of time included in this, right? You know, going from 4.6 billion is the formation of the earth to 423 million is the origin of vascular plants. Like photosynthesis has been going on in some form for a very, very long time. Yeah, and, it, and it seems like it's the kind of, we, we've seen this repeatedly when we've talked about features like this in other episodes. There are lifestyles that used to be much more common in the early, early Earth that today have been restricted to very unusual, rare environments where you can still do that kind of stuff, 
because the conditions on our planet have changed so much Mm -hmm. since those early billion years compared to the more recent billion years. It also makes sense that some form of photosynthesis has been going on for so long because one of the conditions that hasn't changed is the sun. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it's that was one of the things that came up, that came up repeatedly is that and oxygenic photosynthesis used to be a lot more widespread when just oxygen wasn't around because you know, they were they were really good at photosynthesizing using the building blocks that were at hand. And then as the composition of life changed that changed the composition of the atmosphere and that made photosynthesis harder for some things and so yeah they are now restricted to these very special environments the other thing just as a very quick side note that i love about this is it really does emphasize how long it takes to terraform a planet yes (laughs) like it took billions of years for things to get to a point where life could start looking like how we recognize it like it, it it was a process of them slowly changing the atmosphere with what they were pumping out exactly and it's like i said the scales that we're working on here are are kind of hard to fathom you know the tiny scales of enzymes to the billions of years that it takes to make a planet yeah no photosynthesis has basically been around since the beginning that's so cool and do we know very much about how it got started uh the, the, the origins of that first photosynthesis or how one might give rise to another style of photosynthesis. It is really hard to get into like the nitty gritty details of like, you know, what made the first photosynthesis happen. But, you know, mm. Will made a really good point. The sun has been here the whole time. Right. And so it's basically just you know all you're doing is trying to split an atom so that you can make something that you can use for energy and so it does make sense that given kind of like the primordial soup of just available things that yeah like i don't know they'll tear stuff apart with light i don't know we'll see how that works well it would make complete sense that you know the sun affects molecules all the time without special structures (laughs) yes that you just get some cells that oh hey you split not water initially, but, you know, you split the hydrogen inside me and now I now a different different chemical reaction happened. And so uh, we're going to start growing where it's sunny. Yeah, it's just chemistry. Like, that's all it is. And that's it's it's kind of weird when you think about how much of biology is just chemistry and physics. Oh, yeah. You, you know, you think you get it. You know, it's all squishy stuff, but really it's just chemistry and physics. So what's well, that XKCD of breaking down the sciences yes exactly so the exact specific details of what that original situation is something that we're still trying to figure out but again i'm going to be focusing primarily on the oxygenic photosynthesis because that's the kind that i like how many times do you think that has originated c3 (sighs) You ask us this question every time we right. bring you now, on here. I know. Given, <laughs> given what we talked about before, because this is a big question. How many is photosynthesis something that has evolved multiple uh-huh. times? And in what groups might that have happened and, and so on? But given the fact that earlier we talked about how the only major group of prokaryotes that photosynthesize are cyanobacteria and all eukaryotic photosynthesis seems to be inherited from a symbiotic relationship with those cyanobacteria i'm going to go with one i'm going that's where i'm putting i'm putting all my money on 
One. One I'm, origin of photosynthesis. I'll double my odds. Two. Oh, and there we go. Great. <laughs> All right. Cool. We have one and we have two. All right. So... The Dave? answer is zero. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no this has all been a lie. So, David, your logic was flawless. That's exactly it. Hey, I'm really good at this. There you go. Yeah. Good job. 145 so, episodes. Yeah, you're a professional. But yeah, that's exactly it, right? So you have, there is only one prokaryotic group, the, the cyanobacteria that photosynthesizes, and all other photosynthesizer, oxygenic photosynthesizers, do it because of this symbiosis with these plastids. So yeah, it's once. That's it. The basis that's, for all photosynthesis happened once. That's pretty insane, actually. That's yeah. one of those where we we put that question on the outline for this episode. Like, all right, let, may, let's make sure to address this question. I would have been equally uh, credulous at whatever answer, if you had told me photosynthesis had evolved 12 times, I would have believed it. Oh, yeah. Sure. It's everywhere. It seems like such an obvious thing for cells to do. But I no, one time that that spark that gives rise to it, 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 it seems almost understating. Yeah. To say that it gave rise to ecosystems as we know them. It gave rise to ecosystems, period. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yep. One, it's the scenario of it is so everywhere, not because it evolved a whole bunch of times, but because when it evolved, it changed the game. Yes. Exactly. And that's how successful and important this is. Exactly. And that's not to say that it's the only time any kind of photosynthesis evolved, because there's still right. there are alternative pathways. And I have talked about that, that C4 photosynthesis has originated Upwards of 60 times. Man. <laughs> Which is a lot. It's just, it's just a bunch of plants going, well, I figured you could just put it in a box. You just put it in a box. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, exa exactly. Thank you. Exactly. Well, yeah. So it's happened in multiple families across uh, angiosperms. And it's, it's fascinating because it seems that the water conservation was a side effect. It's not the reason. Again, it's just trying to minimize that photorespiration. It's trying to keep Rubisco to focus, please. To the behave. Exactly. But the fact that it also makes it much more water efficient is a wonderful side effect. Oh, uh, that's a side effect? It's, right? <laughs> is this a side effect? And then Cam, oh my goodness, right? So Cam has originated... Oh my goodness, so many times in over 300 <laughs> genera, in over 40 families, in five divisions. Wow. <laughs> like, right? Wow. Everyone's doing camp. And everyone's doing camp. And you thought it was special. I thought it was special. <laughs> well, and that's the fascinating thing because I'm not going to go into this, but I will mention it. One of the things that I saw when I was reading some of these papers about the origins and evolution of C4 photosynthesis and CAM photosynthesis is the fact that a lot of these pathways, like it's convergent. There's a couple of different ways that you can get there. And these mu mutations don't hurt the plant. So like making these changes like, oh, hey, that's neat. Now we can do this. Like it, it's not one of these, one of those things that, you know, ruins everything. It might be related in some instances with genome duplication. I saw that mentioned a couple of times because that's a thing that plants do. But yeah, everyone, everyone's just got to try it once, right? You know, you're young. Try cam photosynthesis. <laughs> it's just procrastinating photosynthesis. I'll do it in the morning. Right. You know, <laughs> that's, 
it is. Well, it's funny because you expect something like Cam to be, to use animal analogies, like flight. Yes. Where it's like, this is so unusual. This is so difficult to achieve. It has only evolved a handful of times, an actual just a few times. But actually, it's more like climbing. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Like, everyone's done this. Yes. It's all over the place. It's like, it's like headgear. Yeah. Plants <laughs> are doing this. It's just nonstop. Exactly. 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 Fantastic. So to get us a bit more into our evidence, looking back through time, how do we study the history of photosynthesis when we're looking at fossils in the fossil record? How do we identify which of those fossils are photos? Obviously, if it's got bark and leaves, that's a pretty good indication. But how do we sort out the the evidence of the, the long evolutionary history of photosynthesis? Okay, so there's a couple of different ways that you can come at this. It's going to also depend basically on what flavor, what specialty, how specialized, where we are in terms of photosynthesis. So when you are looking for the earliest evidence of photosynthesis, it's kind of going to be some of the earliest evidence for life. Yeah. Right. Because the the earliest life was probably photosynthesizing. Yeah, exactly. What are you going to eat other other than light, right? Like, (laughs) what else is there? There's not even enough of you to eat each other yet. So so the answer (laughs) to this question is partially found in episode 100. Yes. yes. When we talked about just the origins of life. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So... Some of what we're seeing, so there's a, there's a variety of ways of coming at this. So some of what we're what we're looking at in terms of evidence is actual physical evidence, and some of it can be a lot harder to recognize than others. Like if you see a leaf, hey, that's evidence of photosynthesis. That's a plant. When we're talking <laughs> about microbial mats, especially some of like the really early stuff. Some of it can be a little bit more contentious or it just might be hard to recognize if you don't know what you're looking for. So in addition to physical evidence, another way that we can come at this is with isotopic studies. Chemical evidence, chemical signatures. Exactly. Looking at it chemically because that's all this is. It's just chemistry. And so by looking yep. at the specifically the carbon isotope, because that's what we're making, right? We're making carbon. We're making sugar. Looking at... That, chemically, that can be evidence of photosynthesis. And depending on what group you're looking at, what kind of photosynthesis. And then to kind of round all of this out, another way that we get at this is molecular clock. Yeah. We have to, because a lot of this stuff is just, it's squishy. (laughs) We're not going to see it. Right. So to remind our listeners, molecular clock studies are looking at genetic information from our modern day diversity of life, in this case of plants and other photosynthesizers, and then comparing the genetics across those groups to estimate how far back certain shared traits would have originated. Yeah, based on an average rate of change to those genetics, we, sh- we really should see these two splitting this far back. Right. Yeah. Or we see fossils of this group and this group were already separated back at this time period and today their descendants share this feature, which means it must have been there before that time period. Mm-hmm. You're looking at genetics and figuring out where the branches on that tree split. Exactly. That that metaphorical tree. <laughs> <laughs> 
Usually we don't have to specify that, but in, in alley episodes. You yeah. do, yeah. you do. The only non-photosynthesizing tree we've mentioned yes. so far. Yes, exactly. So when we are looking at, like, particularly the earliest photosynthesizers, we are looking at chemical evidence. The very first photosynthesizers that we can find evidence for is chemical evidence. And it's carbon isotope composition from graphite. Mm-hmm. Huh. Right? It's 3.8 billion years old from Greenland. And by looking at the, the composition of this, it looks like it is a product of, or at least um, influenced by, an oxygenic photosynthesis. Yeah, that we're seeing a chemical traces and and mm-hmm. and makeup that really only makes sense if something was photosynthesizing exactly exactly at this time in this area exactly and as and that like i said that's 3.8 billion as you continue to get cl- uh you know closer in time i mean barely but like hey it's not as old um then we begin to see physical evidence so there are possible filamentous benthic marine mats from South Africa that have been attributed to hydrogen uh, photosynthesizers from 3.4 billion years ago. Okay, cool. So again, now we're starting to get, like, that's basically recent, right? Right. (laughs) Now that things are getting a little bit younger, now we're to the place where we're not limited by the fact that the rocks are gone. Yes. (laughs) So... When you get a little bit more recent, again, this is about, or a similar age, about 3.5 billion years ago, there's evidence from Australia of evaporites, possible stromatolites, possible microfossils that have been attributed to that hydrogen sulfide photosynthesis. So we're getting a combination of chemical as well as physical. And by the time we get to that early cyanobacteria that is doing oxygenic photosynthesis, those are present in stromatolites. And those are, we can see those. That is something that we recognize and have recognized for a long time. When we're getting into alternative pathways, anybody who is doing anoxygenic photosynthesis is doing something different. But once we get to cyanobacteria, then we're like, cool. All of this is C3. Like, this is oxygenic photosynthesis. We're doing C3 photosynthesis. This is easy. And we don't really see the next big shift, the next big innovation in photosynthesis until we get to CAM and C4. So basically, you have billions of years of, as long as it's a plant, we'll assume it's photosynthesizing. If it's an algae, it's photosynthesizing. You know, If it looks similar to things that we recognize today, we'll call it a photosynthesizer. If we're looking at the chemical... Comp- you know, the chemical isotopes, that looks like a photosynthesizer. It's probably a photosynthesizer. When we're looking at C4 photosynthesis, again, the same sort of thing. We can look at this chemically. We can look at this with a molecular clock and we can look at this physically. But the way that you recognize C4 photosynthesis is physical. Like you, there is a structure, right? They've got, they've got that Krantz anatomy. So if you have well-preserved leaves... And you, if you look at it under SEM, you should be able to see whether or not it has the type of anatomy that you would associate with C4 photosynthesis. And it's remarkable to me that that is just like, we can look in the cells of fossil leaves to see what kind of photosynthesis they were doing. 
That's yeah. awesome. Well, you mentioned earlier when you were describing C4 photosynthesis that you cut a leaf in half yeah. and you can see it in the cross section. Exactly. Now, you mentioned SEM, SEM scanning electron microscopy, mm-hmm. which means you have to look really, really, really closely. Yes. Yeah. It's sci-fi <laughs> but, tech. But yes. it is a physical structure. Yeah. The plant is built yeah. to perform that kind of photosynthesis. Exactly. Because when you think of like the leaves of angiosperms, they are millimeters thick. So in order to mm. actually see this anatomy, you need better than a dissecting, you know, microscope. You you got to, you know, you got to whip out the 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 big hardware. But if we look at like when we see this first evidence of this, we know from other forms of evidence so not just physical evidence. You know, if we look at our understanding of the expansion of grasslands, uh, we look at molecular clock, we look at our knowledge uh, and understanding of changing environments, changing climate, it looks like C4 photosynthesis probably originated during the Oligocene. So grasses... Oh, wow. Yes. Not common. That is very recent. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that, that's 30 million years ago or yeah, so. Yeah, exactly. So for context, for context grasses like grasses as we know them originated were not common but originated during the cretaceous so like the end of the cretaceous so like you know 70 million years ago we have the origin of grasses and then it's not until yeah roughly 30 million years ago we see the origin of c4 photosynthesis and again even when it originated it wasn't like a super common thing C4 photosynthesis did not really take over as a, I guess, viable alternative lifestyle until we also see the spread of grasslands. These things are intrinsically linked. That's it it is very interesting, especially since grasses are such a staple of today's world. Yes. Uh, To think that not just, you know, the group showed up at the Cretaceous, but the group functioning the way we think of them functioning didn't show up until 30 million years ago, roughly. Like, right. And we've talked about that before on the podcast. It's super cool to think that their particular style of photosynthesis also didn't show up until around that time. Yeah, period. like th- this plant group being the way we think of a grass being did not exist until arguably fairly recently. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Like, yeah. Younger than whales. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. Now. Are you about to tell us about Cam? I'm about to tell you about our the oldest known fossils of C4 photosynthesis, and then I'll tell you about Cam. Oh, okay. All right. I'm jumping the gun. <laughs> Go ahead. So the oldest known physical evidence of c4 photosynthesis this was fun because i got to go through this is the oldest known oh no this is the oldest known and so <laughs> yes it started in the pliocene so there was a pliocene plant uh you know grass that was found and then there was a late miocene site this one's i'm invested so the late miocene site is minium quarry in kansas These fossils are located in the Sternberg Museum. I'm in charge of them. Uh, (laughs) Very cool. But it's really cool because if you look at these these grass leaves under SEM, under a microscope, you can see the Krantz anatomy. So at the time, in 1986, that was the oldest known evidence of C4 photosynthesis. Since then, there is a suspected C4 um, grass that is about 14.5 million years old from Fort Tiernan, which is in Western Kenya. 
it looks a lot like it, but it's we can't actually necessarily see that like the anat the Krantz anatomy. It looks like the type of plant that we would expect to be C4, but the undisputed oldest fossil evidence of C4 photosynthesis is from California. <laughs> and they are 12.5 million years old. They're permineralized. You got some leaves of grass. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. That's a, a, astonishingly recent. Yeah. Yes. That's that, like which, basically which now. Which isn't, <laughs> isn't surprising considering that we talked about it is a relatively recent evolutionary innovation. And also that you're looking for almost chemical evidence. This is extremely, you're looking at cellular evidence, I should yes. say. Yeah. Which is extremely rare to find anyway. Yeah. So like, the fact that it's a very young fossil is makes sense it makes total sense very cool though so cam now we're on to cam cam is much harder because mm-hmm. you don't it's it's basically behavior i was yeah. just gonna say yes. cam is it's yes. a behavior more than an anatomy that's why i was freaking out earlier it's mm-hmm. so <laughs> different and that ma- it makes so much sense like are you camming am i so <laughs> so that's the thing right so with with c or we could at least pinpoint like yes physical evidence we can also look at you know this chemical evidence when you're looking at the carbon isotopic signature for c4 and c3 plants c3 and c4 photosynthesizers they are distinct you know you can right. you can look at it and be like yeah this if it if it plots out over here on the graph this is going to be c3 if it's going to plot out over here this is going to be c4 c4 and we've talked about this before on the podcast that it's so distinct that you can even distinguish it in the teeth of the animals that eat those different kinds of plants. Exactly. Even after it's gone through that extra step of being in an animal, like the, right. these. Well, are... it's it, it's gone. It went from photosynthesis. Then it was part of respiration. <laughs> yeah. Yep. It was part of an animal's metabolic processes. Yes. But that composition uh, of that chemical ratio is preserved exactly exactly so you know c3 c4 we got this we can differentiate them (sighs) cam is in the middle it (laughs) kind of overlaps with both and so in terms of trying to differentiate it chemically it can be really really hard you know is this an outlier for C3 is this an outlier for C4 it's hard to be like this is cam which complicates things in addition like I said this is basically behavior we're not looking for some sort of structural component like just need to know whether or not they were closing the doors at night and in addition to that I talked about and you know y'all have both brought up the plants that tend to do C4 excuse me the plants that do cam photosynthesis tend to be succulents Mm -hmm. those are squishy Mm -hmm. those aren't going to preserve very well yeah so it's it's hard it is very hard to really pin down when cam started and if you're looking at it from when you look at it from like a molecular clock standpoint it is also really complicated because there are so many there are so many times that this has originated. So you might be able to pin down in this group, it originated at this point, but it happened so many times that like, that's of only variable, uh, you know, aid. That's only going to help you so much. Mm-hmm. 
It is interesting though, because if you look at one of the not angiosperms who uses CAM photosynthesis, isoides, it's the quillwort. It is entirely CAM. So it is a, mono, a present day monophyletic CAM taxon. One type of plant? Yes. That is just one group, uh, one origin. Yep. Only does CAM. Yes. Which can be really helpful, right? Like all of these do it. Okay, how did they get here? Where did where did this start? So it seems to give some molecular evidence that there was the existence of CAM photosynthesis by the early Cretaceous. Okay. So 120, 130 million years yeah. ago or thereabouts. Exactly. Makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So we don't know for sure, but that seems likely. Um, and that also okay. does seem likely in terms of when you're thinking about the changing Earth's environment and the composition of life on Earth in terms of plant life on Earth. Like Cretaceous, you're starting to see a big old, big old mix up there. So mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, let's innovate some photosynthesis. There are some fossils, though. There are some fossils, uh, CAM fossils. They tend to be very recent. So middle Miocene, late Pleistocene, Holocene. Like these are these are babies. Right. All uh, within the last 10 million years or so. Yeah, basically. Exactly. Um, and the way that we are recognizing these these plants is not based on, again, like any sort of structure. Like, yes, this means that it was doing CAM photosynthesis. We are looking at their morphologic similarities to extant CAM photosynthesizers. So the middle Miocene fossil is called Proteuca. It is very likely an early member, the same group that yucca is in, which is a type of agave. It is a CAM plant. But who knows? We, we you know, it looks like things that currently photosynthesize. But who, who can say? Right. Uh, looking at, this is, you know, looking at chemical, so delta C13, looking at the carbon isotope values of a fossil cactus, so um, an Opuncha cactus, from old pack rat middens from the Pleistocene, we can see that, hey, these isotopically look like we're seeing a shift. So that depending on the climate, we might see more evidence of cam expression because you know cam plants don't always have to do cam if something else is going to work better they can do something else there is another fossil uh bromeliad fossil from the pleistocene pleistocene holocene somewhere in there relatively recent that looks very much like an extant cam bromeliad pro mostly because of the thickness of its leaves so most leaves are a millimeter or less uh, it's a leaf is considered a succulent if it is greater than that. If it's more than basically paper, more than basically a millimeter. Oh. Yeah, that's a succulent. But yeah, so this leaf was 1.6 millimeters thick, th which means like that's probably a succulent. It looks very similar to other bromeliads, other things that are using CAM. This is probably fossil evidence of, of CAM. And a lot of this is very much... It resembles, it is reminiscent of, based on molecular clock data, this would be reasonable. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, there's functionally no, like, there's functionally zero evidence. Like, 
we've got kind of three that I could find. Then there's not a whole lot more than that. Uh, I did a lot of digging and was very frustrated uh, by, <laughs> yeah, by how I little bet. there was. Yeah. I, I have a question about cam evolution now that mentioning how many times it's come up and how hard it is to the, uh, parse all of that out and to find solid evidence. Is there any evidence of a group that has left cam photosynthesis behind? Ooh. That has stopped shifting between day and night and closing up at night or uh, during the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do not know off the top of my head, but I feel like that is definitely an option. You know what I mean? Like that feels like something that could happen because it is so relatively simple for plants that use cam to kind of flip flop and go back and forth. You know, it probably structurally would not be that difficult for them to be like, meh. Let's do C3 now. Like, it's fine. Oh, yeah. it's like, right. Easier than going from C4 back to C3. Yes, oh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because then you got to, like, do structural changes. Mm. Well, because I, I can just see that if you're one a plant that uses CAM regularly, but then you're in a situation where it's really not, especially if it's one of the groups that switches often. Yeah. And you're in a situation where, oh, no, it's pretty much fine, you know, 24-7. You're, you're, yeah. the, the situation is, is A-okay. That if you're not using that feature, it just might get lost. Yeah. You know, to where it's at. Those genes just aren't being selected for, so they're just going to gain mutations and, yeah, and be I, weird. I I wouldn't be surprised if something like that happened, especially given how many times it has originated. Like, you know, you could have a group. It's entirely possible that a group who is just does C3 photosynthesis today could have dabbled with CAM in the past, and we would probably have no evidence for it. That was going to be my question is like, and if this has happened, would we even be able to tell if there's a plant today that's not doing it? It, Who knows? It could be, (laughs) it could be one of those things that, because like, even though most photosynthesizers are using C3, like it's functionally the same pathway, but you know, still spice it up a little bit. There are groups that make it a little bit more uh, efficient. So it could just be that. You know, somebody is a little bit more efficient at C3 photosynthesis, and it could be because at one point they dabbled in something else, and then they were like, yeah, but, like, this is still easier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so that's so weird and fascinating. <laughs> so, as we get towards the end of our discussion about photosynthesis, there is a theme that has come up in the Alley episodes, and it is a theme that I know that you, Allie, are very happy with because it goes right along with the thing you're always preaching about how plants are not just the background. We've talked about this when we did our grasses episode, episode 38. We talked about it with flowering plants in episode 57. We talked about it with trees in episode 73. When plants do new things, it has a habit of changing the world. It's not like, you know, oh, well, these animals started doing that uh, no when grasslands happened when flowering plants happened it changed the world forever photosynthesis mm-hmm. is so fundamental and we've been touching on this throughout the episode that i know just from my you know cursory knowledge of the history of the planet that photosynthesis has changed the course of life on earth multiple times for different reasons ali if you would please uh, explain to us the various ways that photosynthesis has shaped the the world as we know it. <laughs> so I cannot go into literally every time because we would be here all day, but I will tell you some of my favorites. <laughs> one, once a year yeah. for the last 3.8 billion years. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So 
Let's start off with one of my favorites, the Great Oxidation Event. Episode yeah. 75, if you want more details. <laughs> yes. Basically, photosynthesis rusted the planet. Like, <laughs> if that isn't evidence for photosynthesis changing the world, I don't know what is. Like, we got an oxygen-rich atmosphere that caused the um, iron to rust because we went from having a reducing atmosphere to an oxidizing atmosphere. Like, it fundamentally changed the appearance of the Earth, right? Because we get these banded iron formations. It changed the composition of life on Earth because, again, having an atmosphere with oxygen is really bad for some life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's super dangerous for some things. So we talked about, like I said, all episode 75. This is around two and a half billion years ago when oxygen levels rise dramatically over a geologically short period of time, thanks to shifts in the photosynthesizer composition of the planet. And yeah, associated with the presumed mass extinction of a lot of things that thrived in the previous oxygen poor ecosystems. Uh, Also, this came up in episode 124 because Mm -hmm. it may or may not be linked to an ancient snowball earth event. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. So, like, this, it changed the fact that photosynthesis, oxygenic photosynthesis started becoming more and more widespread, rusted the earth. Okay. So that's the, that's the big one. Like, we got to, you know, that's the elephant in the room. We got that out of the way. <laughs> so the next thing that I have talked about multiple times in this episode already has been primary production the fact that without photosynthesizers most environments on the planet terrestrial you know marine would not exist like with the exception of you know extremophiles that are completely separated from light in our living you know you know chemo autotrophs right they're making their their energy that way with very few exceptions everybody else is either directly or indirectly getting energy from a photosynthesizer. Like, ugh, I can't, I cannot overstate how important this is. Yeah, photosynthesis is the foundation of basically every ecosystem on the planet. Exactly, yes. exactly. And like, for, you know, when we are in marine environments, you have different types of algae, you have your cyanobacteria, that sort of stuff. But when you get on land... You know, I've, I've talked about this before. When we talk about terrestrial environments, if you're talking about terrestrial environment, the word you say to describe it is probably going to have a reference to the plants that live there. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think one of the telling things about how amazingly constant that that fact is, that plants are the base of just about every single food chain and, and food web in the planet is that even in situations where there is no light, mm-hmm. deep sea and caves mm-hmm. are still typically res, uh, relying on nutrients coming from environments where there are primary producers. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. You've got like those deep sea vents and those those uh, seeps at the bottom of the ocean. And that's really the only situations we have that don't need the sun. Yeah. Otherwise... <laughs> Yeah. Even a cave needs a river bringing stuff in 
through the cave. Exactly. Like marine snow, which is just, you know, bits of detritus from dead bodies, but those dead bodies probably got their energy from a primary producer of some kind. Like, even if there's multiple steps in this process to get there, plants make, like, the the fact that so much of the basis of life comes from the fact that, like, you know, from photosynthesizers and the fact that when you think about it, they're just using light to break some water molecules to make some sugar, like... That is, that is so hard to kind of wrap your mind around. Like, that's it. That's all they're doing. Like, it's so, it's so simple, but it's so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In addition to that, I do want to kind of build on uh, what I have talked about before, the, these terrestrial environments that, you know, we have, again, I say we, I think I'm a plant, clearly, mm-hmm. because this is like the royal <laughs> we situation. But, you know, photosynthesizers gave us this oxygen-rich atmosphere that we currently get to enjoy. They have provided us with energy in basically every sort of environment just to have, you know, so that anyone who is a heterotroph who isn't making their own energy can survive. And then they terraformed the planet. (laughs) Like, if you think about terrestrial environments, you know, photosynthesis... You know, in, in land plants allowed there to be terrestrial environments in many respects. Like they're not the only ones, but in many respects, the reason that we have the terrestrial environments we know today is because of land plants, you know, paving the way for the terrestrialization of everybody else. And throughout time, plants have just had new innovations in photosynthesis, new innovations in efficiency of the process, right? You know, when you have... When you are able to, once you have the development of stomata and then you can be, uh, you have these pores that you can open to be more efficient with the ways that you are letting in CO2 and, and, you know, releasing on purpose or accidentally other molecules, like that makes you more efficient. Once you become more efficient with water, water is one of the ingredients. Like, again, you're going to get better at photosynthesis at every step that we have an innovation in photosynthesis. We have an innovation in plants and environments, right? Like I've talked about this before. It's one of my favorite things. The evolution of C4 photosynthesis gave us a new biome. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's where grasslands happened. That's yeah. where grasslands happened. Exactly. So it wasn't, it, you know, without these sort of innovations, like just the fact that photosynthesis exists and the fact that oxygenic photosynthesis originated once all of these innovations that have changed the face of the earth in so many different ways are have basically one origin well it's it's so cool to think that photosynth this chemical process the the existence of photosynthesis is the reason that this is an oxygenated planet Mm -hmm. it's the reason that we have air to breathe which Mm -hmm. is like when you when you're watching sci-fi things that's one of the key go-to, if there's no other science in that space movie, <laughs> yes. they will mention, well, I can breathe. Buzz Lightyear knows <laughs> that the difference between being able to take your helmet off or not is if you can breathe the air because there's oxygen. That's only the case on this planet because of photosynthesis. Yeah. We call this planet the blue-green planet. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of those colors is only there because this chemical process has taken over everywhere. Exactly. And the fact that this is such a nutritious planet. Yeah. That 
basically anywhere you go on this planet, if you are animal life, there is something to eat. Yes. And that is because the, the planet is carpeted with organisms that are turning sunlight into food. Exactly. And are graciously sharing it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so photosynthesis is pretty cool, I'd say. It's awesome. Well, and this is one of those great foundational episode topics where now the every other plant episode yep. we've done is, I was going to say colored by this discussion, <laughs> which I guess, yes. Pigmented by Sort it. of pigmented. It, it, this is sort of what has underpinned all of the diversity of plants that we've discussed in any other episode. Exactly. Well, Allie, before we leave the topic of photosynthesis for good, we have one more section that we do in our episodes, and that is our patron question. And it just so happens that we have some patrons who have asked questions related to this photosynthetic topic. Yeah. So this is one of the benefits that our subscribers on Patreon can get, the ability to ask us questions, to answer here on the podcast, and every now and then they'll ask us questions that are just perfect for our Plant Alley episodes. Now, this episode, we actually have two. Renee asked, what's up with purple-leafed plants? Are they photosynthesizing differently? And wouldn't you know it? Already answered that question. I'm a professional. (laughs) Thank you for that question, Renee. So instead of giving you a nice toss-up question about plants, uh, I instead have a question about algae. Hans asks, I was wondering about algae, specifically the green kind. For some reason, green algae seem to be especially adept at freshwater and terrestrial habitats. They can cover trees and stones. They live alongside fungi as lichen and so on. Is there a known reason why these particular algae seem so successful at adapting to these habitats while other algae groups are not as commonly found there? So I'm going to answer this question by answering a different question. So, (laughs) Allie is asking her own patron question. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So when I was looking into this, I couldn't find a lot of evidence about why green algae was especially good at this. But I did find evidence for why other algaes were not as good at it. So it's kind of the opposite of the question, but I swear I'm answering it. So the other algaes, other most common algaes are going to be especially your red algae. So like red and brown sort of algaes. So one of the the, the reigning hypothesis, the, the current thinking to why red algae is far less common in non-marine settings they're very rare in freshwater and completely absent in terrestrial is because very very long ago in their evolutionary history basically before the fight for terrestrialization they underwent a dramatic genome bottleneck (laughs) that's what happens when a population shrinks dramatically and then has to kind of rebuild from a depauperate starting point. Exactly. You have a smaller set of genes now. Exactly. So somewhere after the split between red and green algae, red algae just had a huge bottleneck in in terms of just uh, a huge, excuse me, a huge reduction in the size of the genome. About 25% of the core genes were permanently shed. Like that's substantial. That is substantial. So some of them had to do with motility. Some of them had to do with pathways for light sensing. Like there were a whole bunch of different pathways that uh, are now completely gone. But because of that, there are pros and cons to cutting down your genome, right? If you have 
a bigger genome, there are more things that you can choose from in order for to make building blocks, but there is also more room for weirdness and bad things to kind of get stuck in there. So basically the idea is that the red algae, the this kind of ancestral red algae evolved to live in extreme environments. So it had these specializations to live in these you know extremophile environments like hot springs and things like that like really hot environments and so basically they simplified their lifestyle cut down their genome and were doing great against other small genomed algae in those sorts of environments but when it got to the point of trying to get out of these harsh environments and into uh environments like freshwater or the land, they were not equipped with the building blocks to have these adaptations. So this, this bottleneck happened like a billion years ago, right? Like it was a very long time ago, but Mm -hmm. it's enough that it has basically got them out of the running of terrestrialization since then. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's cool because we've talked about situations like that before with animals. Yep. Where we see, for example... Uh, snakes, snake month. With snakes, snakes have <laughs> certain features in their genome and in their anatomy that are reduced. Aspects of their vision that seem to be reduced. Obviously, legs, which seems to have been a bunch of stuff that happened early on when the ancestors of snakes evolved for a very particular lifestyle. And then later they diversified out of that, but those reductions stuck around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, We've talked about how the reduced color vision in mammals is suspected to be a side effect of a ancestrally nocturnal habitats where they didn't need that, but then things changed and now they're more diverse, but they've retained that mm-hmm. sort of reduced feature. So it sounds like red algae and other algaes besides the greens mm-hmm. might have just evolved themselves into a nice, comfortable yeah. little corner, yeah. but then kind of got stuck that way while the green algaes were able to do all sorts of cool stuff. And yeah. w- and one little addition to that is that some algae live, in, you know, some of these red algae live in less inhospitable, so more hospitable, I guess that's how you'd actually say that, uh, locations. And they think that the way that they achieved this, you know, getting away from this really specialized environment is through horizontal gene transfer. From green algae? Uh, I think it's from bacteria. So maybe cyanobacteria. Yeah. So getting getting some extra. We, we Listen, we got rid of all our genes. Do yes. you have any genes Can to share? Can we borrow some, please? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, I, that's very interesting because like it, they at some point lost a, about a quarter of their genetic diversity, mm-hmm. evidently losing the tools that would allow them to spread outside of the places they were specialized for. And the ones that have done a bit of that Got those tools from someone else. Yep. <laughs> yep. <Or> borrowing them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Very that's, cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for that question, Hans. Thank you for that question, Renee. Thank you to all of our patrons for asking questions. And thank you, as always, to Allie Yay. for joining us to tell us about cool plant stuff. Yay. I hope that now y'all have a more positive association with learning about photosynthesis. Yes. <laughs> I feel like this made photosynthesis less scary. I also feel like your trek through the groups that photosynthesize did a better job than I've seen most do of explaining why algaes are not one group and why the green algae you see is not a plant. Yes. Yeah. You know, why the, why we distinguish cuz I I've seen people get ex- confused by that just oh yeah. all the time. I've of, gotten confused by that. Why yeah. aren't these plants? 
And that that was a very nice way to separate them out. That made a lot of sense. Yay! Absolutely. I'm here to help about plants. Well, we hope uh, that our listeners have enjoyed and learned a bunch of stuff about photosynthesis. We sure have. (gasps) We're going to go ahead and wrap it up. We've been talking about plants and stuff for a long, long time. (laughs) Thank you to all the people who requested this episode. We really appreciate it. Thank you to all of our new patrons and our old patrons and to everybody who listens to the podcast. We put a bunch of announcements up at the top of the episode, so check those things out. Go back across Croc and Snake Month, which is over now, but if you want to go back and check out the cool Croc and Snake Month stuff. And of course, stay tuned for other things we have upcoming. And as always, let us know what other topics you want to hear about, in particular, other Alley episodes. Episodes that end in a five are plants. Now, uh, here at the very end of the episode, I'm going to share with you, Allie, and our listeners, a revelation that I had recently. So the next time Allie will be on the podcast will be episode 155. And I was looking ahead at the calendar, and I realized that not only is episode 155 the last episode of the year, episode 155 will release on Christmas. I know exactly what I want to talk about, David! Now, unfortunately, (laughs) Allie doesn't get to choose what we talk about. Our listeners do. So listeners, between now and December, actually, you'll have to let us know a little bit. Start requesting things if you have any cool ideas for what would be an appropriate plant-themed topic for an episode that will come out on christmas day that's you know what very fitting y'all are gonna have great ideas i cannot wait to see what you suggest for me to talk about yes because i'm gonna be honest right now we don't actually have very many fitting requests on our request list for that i have faith in y'all we're we're putting the call out that's cool ideas tree signal let us know fill the request list and we will chat with Allie in a number of months about what kind of options we have for when we do that But in the meantime, before we get to that, episode 146 comes up next. We release episodes every fortnight. Please continue to engage with us in all of the ways that you can find in our episode description. Please keep letting us know what kind of things you want us to talk about, animal, plant, and otherwise. And we will be back soon for more uh, discussions about stuff. And then someday we will have Allie back. Allie, always a pleasure. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) We'll see you on Christmas. Yeah! Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.